part of the motivation for the article was, you know, uh, it, I started writing it in graduate school. Uh, part of my, one of my fields was regional urban economics. And I was, I actually was reading, it's a popular press article, but it's basically like the, the title is something like, uh, should we let Buffalo continue to exist or should we let Buffalo die? And honestly, it just pissed me off because it's like, well, there's people there. Okay. And so clearly, like, I'm not sure what, like, how is there a positive, you know, welfare effect of like letting a city deteriorate? And so, you know, I was thinking about that. And then kind of my other wheelhouse is kind of post Keynesian macro. And so I started seeing the linkages. And so there's definitely like underlying all of this are welfare motivations. Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are joined by Luke Pitak, who's an assistant professor of economics at Belmont University. Um, and we'll be talking about his recent article in the Cambridge Journal of Economics, Spatial Keynesian Policy and the Decline of Regional Income Convergence in the United States of America. Luke, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Luke? How did, uh, how did you get into economics and into spatial macro in particular? Yeah, so I came into economics as an undergraduate, and I was actually, I started as a philosophy major, and I was interested um, in kind of problems related to uh, equity and inequality and thinking about them in a rigorous way. And I found economics offered a kind of structured approach to those issues that I found appealing. Um, and so I ended up double majoring in economics. Um, and because of my philosophical background, had read, you know, some of the classical political economists actually in philosophy courses, so Smith, Marx, and was interested in those approaches. And there's only a handful of graduate economics programs in the United States that um, offer kind of study of classical political economy or political, political economy more generally. And so Colorado State was one of those. And then uh, you know, my first year of graduate school, I took Daniela's graduate heterodox economic thought class and kind of the rest was history, so to speak. That seems to be a pattern among the people that we talk to, starting off in philosophy and then moving into more uh, economics type space, um, starting with these like really big uh, methodological grant historical questions and then trying to actually give an answer to them. Well, well yeah, and I'll, I'll be uh, two things on that. One, it turns out those questions are really hard. And so if you can kind of find smaller questions to chip away at, it makes life a little bit easier. And two, um, the job market for academic philosophers is really tough. And so, I mean, I had talked to philosophy professors in undergraduate, and one of them was basically told me, and he, he's Mark McLeod Harrison, he's now retired, but he's well-published, like, uh, scholar in philosophy of religion. And he was basically like, yeah, if you can do anything else, I would. 
because he just was like, wow, it doesn't matter. You know, even if you get into a top 10 program in philosophy, it's a crapshoot, whereas in econ, uh, the odds are a little bit better. So, yeah. And there are always um, safety belts as well. So we're really excited to talk about this article, but um, to start, I guess I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what the term spatial Keynesianism means. Yeah, so the way I see it, it's it's basically the idea of applying Keynesian policy principles with an explicit acknowledgement of the geography of economic activity, right? So if you think about, you know, traditional Keynesian policy prescriptions regarding demand management, they're typically kind of cached in terms of an aspatial macroeconomic model, but if you think about the effects of demand management policies, right? Unless people of a given income level, if we're talking redistribution uh, or uh, various uh, unemployment status are distributed equally across space, then any sort of income redistribution or demand management policy is going to have the effect of reallocating economic activity across space. And so spatial Keynesianism is about acknowledging this explicitly and acknowledging the fact that unequal distribution of economic activity across space matters and is something that's worth thinking about when it comes to policy. Yeah, as a, as a corollary, um, I guess we're used to thinking about, you know, Keynesianism in terms of demand management. But I think what's interesting about uh, this paper and the spatial Keynesian sort of framework in more in general is you, you also describe it as a subset of uh, industrial policy. Uh, so, so whereas in industrial policy, we think of, you know, uh, subsidizing, let's say, a, a line of industry with increasing returns to scale or something like that. Uh, in spatial Keynesianism, you're sort of applying the same logics at work, uh, but to economic regions, right? Um, right. And right. It, it, it made me think of, I guess, uh, you know, it, stri- it strikes me that spatial Keynesianism could bridge sort of Keynesian demand, demand management and almost like welfare economics. Um, you know, the talk of industrial policy uh, reminded me of, you know, classical uh, welfare economists like uh, Arthur Cecil Pigou or someone like that. Um, but I was wondering if, do you see any connections there between, uh, you know, welfare economics and sort of its efficiency criterion and um, spatial Keynesianism? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, so in the paper, I don't deal with like welfare in the utility sense that like, you know, Pigou or someone is thinking of in, in the, the classical welfare economics tradition, but you can certainly think about it in t- in similar terms, if if you're moving or reallocating economic activity from a capacity constrained region to one with excess capacity, right? You're presumably, you know, increasing overall capacity utilization or overall aggregate demand. And so this should have kind of positive welfare effects in the aggregate, depending on what you think the you know, social welfare function is. So I think, you know, part of the reason I, I care about this is because they're, they're, they're welfare effects. And so like part of the motivation for the article was, you know, uh, it, I started writing it in graduate school. Uh, part of my, one of my fields was regional urban economics. And I was, I actually was reading, it's a popular press article, but it's by Ed Glazier. And it's basically like the, the title is something like, uh, should we let Buffalo continue to exist or should we let Buffalo die? And honestly, it just pissed me off because it's like, well, there's people there. Okay. And so clearly, like, I'm not sure what, like, how is there a positive, you know, welfare effect of like letting a city deteriorate? And so, you know, I was thinking about that and then kind of my other wheelhouse is kind of post-Keynesian macro. And so I started seeing the linkages. And so there's definitely like underlying all of this are welfare motivations. 
another question that we had was, um, you know, you sort of divide the 20th century into periods during which we had this spatial Keynesian regime uh, and then a move away from it. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about when you see this sort of intentional convergence policy, uh, yeah. spatial Keynesianism uh, uh, being implemented? And then, and then when does it start turning away from that? Yeah, so I'll first note that I'm not a historian, so I don't want to put too fine a point on it like, or, and upset someone regarding dates or whatever. But I'll say that you, you can kind of see clear patterns in, in policy in, in general eras or different points in time. Um, so like, I, I think spatial thinking or, or thinking about the implications for geography is very clear uh, in a lot of New Deal era policies. So for example, a big one I talk about in the paper is the Tennessee Valley Authority and a lot of other economists have studied this, but also you have things like the Rural Electrification Administration, the Farmers Relief Act of 1933, the Farm Tenancy Act of 1937. Uh, at this time too is when a lot of the big regulations for industries like communications and transportation, which are two big ones that other people have talked about, uh, Sitarum and Ricks and co-author who are at Vanderbilt have this Duke Law Review article that's really good that just came out. Robert and his Washington Center piece uh, talks about both of these industries, but you have things like the Motor Carrier Act of 1935, the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. So all, you know, a lot of policy in this New Deal era was designed explicitly with kind of geographic considerations in mind. Um, but even if you look at policy that seems like aspatial uh, upfront, like a lot of various antitrust legislation. You'll see if you look at kind of some of the debates about the policies at the time. So you'll, you'll see that they're thinking about them in terms of the spatial or geographic implications. So that that Duke Law Review paper I mentioned, they have a quote from uh, Supreme Court Justice, I'm forgetting who, but basically it's on antitrust policy. And the context of the quote makes clear, the quote says something about the reason we care about antitrust is because of local economic activity and the local person, right? And so it's clearly that there's this element of geography in mind. And, and of course, you know, the general theories published in 1936. So, you know, it's not like they had red canes and were thinking about this, but it was just, it was kind of in the air. Um, and, and I would say this continues, you know, up until, you know, there's kind of a drift away from spatial Keynesianism at the same time that there's a drift away from Keynesian demand management policy more generally. So, um, kind of erosion of the Keynesian macroeconomic consensus in response to the 1970s inflation and unemployment crises also contributed to uh, the fall away from spatial Keynesianism. So high inflation prompted quote unquote taxpayer revolts across the country. You had Proposition 13 in California in 1978, um, which basically capped property tax rates um, effectively over the next couple of years. 43 states implemented something similar. Um, you know, you had some type of property tax limitation or reduction, 15 states lowered income tax rates in the years following Prop 13. Um, there's a great 1981 article on a, in a poli-sci journal by Nathan, last name Nathan, um, who, who basically claims that you can think about kind of Reagan's policy platform as effectively the nationalization of California's Prop 13 with the goal of kind of devolving these responsibilities to states and letting states, basically state tax competition, push tax rates down, right? So roughly those are the, those are the kind of the periods. Um, and, but you can see, you know, even at like late in that period, like 1970, there's this piece by Nikki Calor. Um, on, I think it's titled on the regional problem or the regional question. And, and in the piece, he kind of takes 
for granted that, that, you know, of course, you know, governments are taking responsibility for reallocating economic activity towards a region, uh, uh, across regions, right? So he says, like, this is something that will naturally occur, that governments will want to do this. And of course, we now know that's not so obvious if you look at the data, right? Convergence in the U.S. has basically stopped. There's some evidence of divergence. Uh, you know, big names like Larry Summers are, are writing papers on this. You know, I'm not sure how correct Larry is in some of his policy prescriptions, but, you know, there's a tension being turned to this, right? Actually, I, I wanted to, as I, as, as I was reading the, the sort of historical context uh, that you give in the paper, um, another name popped up in my mind, uh, James Buchanan, and I guess the Virginia School of Public Choice. Um, mm -hmm. And it's weird because, at, you know, on the one hand, he, he's, you know, high Tennessean sort of from the South and clearly yeah. concerned about kind of regional underdevelopment and these, these questions. Um, but yeah. on the other hand, he sort of pioneers, you know, a model. He kind of clears the way towards the sort of tax competition um, and kind of regional competition model that he described as sort of taking over from spatial Keynesianism. So I, I was just, yes. you know, wondering if you have any thoughts on Buchanan and-, and Oh, his, I, I have thoughts on Buchanan. Um, I mean, so I, I kind of got interested I mean, he's just, he's like an interesting figure. And of course, when I was in grad school, that book, Democracy in Chains came out and there's a couple other books that kind of, I don't think he's like the art villain that some people paint him to be, but I mean, like, and I think actually some, uh, one downfall of kind of left-leaning economists like myself is I don't think we paid enough attention to public choice critiques and issues of regulatory capture, um, which are not, which I think apply to, you know, anyone on either side of the aisle. But in any case, um, yeah, so there's this, a great example of this is that there's this book um, from a conference that's co-authored by Buchanan and Musgrave. And so in the book, there's a chapter on fiscal federalism. And, you know, M Musgrave uh, is talking about it. You know, he has his like three, Musgrave's famous three functions of government, uh, stabilization, allocation, and, and distribution. And he's kind of bemoaning fiscal federalism as undermining attempts to uh, achieve equitable income distribution. And Buchanan responds in, in the book and he's basically like, and I'm doing a bad job paraphrasing, he's like, yeah, that's great. That's exactly what we want fiscal federalism to do. Yeah, good. And so, yeah, I think like, you know, he's definitely an advocate uh, of that. And to the extent, you know, that the public choice kind of school has had influence, that's been one kind of negative uh, to come out of it. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not thinking of the title of the book, but they're Buchanan and Musgrave co-authored. It's like a, it was a conference and they gave these, it, it's, it's a, it's a very enlightening read because it's not like Musgrave is like, you know, all that in, in for like expansive government necessarily, right? He's fairly moderate, but contrasting him with Buchanan really sheds light on like, okay, well, just how far, you know, how, how little government does someone like Buchanan want? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think exactly like you, you can see the influence of public choice there, like acknowledging basically that, that fiscal federalism restrains redistribution and Buchanan thinks that's a good thing. Um, you know, in, in the paper, I talk a little bit about this too, um, right? That, that one of what I think the downfalls of fiscal federalism or what, you know, is sometimes called in the kind of urban studies tradition by people like Harvey, urban entrepreneurialism uh, is that it restrains the policy set that policymakers can choose from, right? Because even if everyone in my locality agrees, let's raise taxes on capital and redistribute income towards workers. Well, there's, you know, basically subnational capital arbitrage so that firms can move 
business operations across state lines fairly easily um, and basically avoid the tax, right? And so this is bad because even if one locality wants to raise taxes, it's basically constrained uh, by the whatever the lower bound tax rate is in other nearby states. So um, yeah, this is a problem. You know, public choice argued it was a good thing. I think it's it's not actually right. Could, could you talk a little bit about why I guess Buchanan came to those conclusions? I think I think you you kind of spelled out the general logic, but it, the, is it he has some normative commitments right behind his model of fiscal federalism? He's I guess concerned above all with maybe individual liberty, or I guess the the ability for taxpayers and companies to sort of you know vote with their feet. <laughs> as it were, but yeah, do you see anything else? Because it yeah. also strikes me that spatial Keynesianism, Keynesianism is not, you know, it's not a purely like positivistic model like uh, like Samuelsonian welfare economics. It also has its own set of kind of normative commitments. So um, yeah, do you mind kind of expanding on uh, some of those for, for our listeners? Yeah, so I mean, I think the normative commitments that are behind someone like Buchanan's uh, adherence to fiscal federalism are, are one big in the public choice literature is the commitment to the unanimity principle, right, which is it's basically kind of a generalization of the Pareto principle to, uh, you know, voting applications, political economy voting. And it's the idea that uh, it's rooted in methodological individualism so that all values are individual values, right? And so that even if 99 out of 100 people think something's good, if another person, if one person thinks it ba it's bad, we shouldn't do it because we'd be foisting our values on them. And so we can't ever do it, right? And so, you know, what Buchanan calls political redistribution, right, which is any type of tax and spend policy is always going to violate the unanimity principle. So this is why he thinks it's bad. And fiscal federalism inherently, you know, restrains Leviathan, as Buchanan might say. Um, and so this is a good thing. And so th there is this normative commitment uh, behind behind it there from someone like uh, Buchanan. So I, I don't talk about Buchanan in the paper at all, but I'm, I'm glad we are now because like, you know, this is a very interesting outlet. It is sort of an amazingly like genius, and he, you know, he was aware of this, of course, but just like a genius way of essentially enforcing the unanimity principle of like, as long as there's any city in the entire country that doesn't want taxes higher than a given rate, then like, no tax, no city can tax at higher than that rate because the companies will all just leave, and like, you know, you don't have to have any sort of you know constitutional whatever prohib prohibition on it or anything like that. It's just sort of you know allowing the mobility to happen. Yeah, exactly. It's a very low cost way of enforcing it too, right? Because it's just, you know, playing out. So switching, switching tracks here a little bit, um, one of the, the key theorists uh, that you draw on to make your case is, uh, I think you mentioned it before, uh, Nikki Kaldor, uh, who talks about increasing returns to scale and the effect that that has on geography. So I was, I was wondering if you could spell out a little bit um, what you see increasing returns to scale coming into your account. Because um, on the one hand, I can see why you know, it would cause spatial concentration in large cities, right? But if that's the, it, it, because for efficiency reasons, right? But if that's the case, why would we want to redistribute away? Wouldn't we want to sort of make sure that all, well, wouldn't we want one big city that's uh, the biggest and uh, the most increasing return to scale? Yeah, why doesn't everyone live in one city? Um, yeah. Yeah, so one way to think about this is to take a step back and think about like the convergence problem generally and the, the two ways it's dealt with in the literature. You know, if you're a macroeconomist and you, th and you think about something like the solo model, right? Um, so because of diminishing returns to capital accumulation in the solo model, 
Right? The model implies that there's a single unique global steady state that for a given level of technology, uh, you're going to converge to, right? And so countries with the same initial conditions, same initial capital stock, will all converge to the same steady state. Now, now in the data, you know, that there's not support for the global convergence hypothesis, but there is for conditional convergence that across countries, uh, economies with the same initial level of technology, the same institutions, and, you know, if you just look within OECD countries, for example, there seems to be evidence of convergence, okay? Now, if you think about that at the subnational level, well, it seems like different states, different cities within the US should roughly have access to the same sorts of production technology, uh, same, they, they are part of the same kind of set of institutions. I mean, we do have different laws across states, but they don't vary by nearly as much as they do across countries. And so we should expect, I, you know, from the logic of something like the solo model within country convergence. On the other hand, uh, as Nick, brought up at the beginning, uh, you know, the reason why cities exist in the urban economics literature is increase either scale externalities or agglomeration externalities, right? Both of which imply the concentration of economic activity in space. And so if those predominate, there's actually no reason to expect convergence across places. Um, and so, you know, if, if you kind of look at what's happening with regional income divergence in the United States right now, it seems like those factors are, are predominating, especially in the absence of any sort of kind of corrective from the federal government um, and kind of the lack of spatial Keynesian type policy efforts. And so to Nick's question of like, you know, why shouldn't we all live in one? So, so there's kind of the theory about what are the two driving factors? Uh, why, why shouldn't we all live in one city, right? Well, I, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that like, it's hard for people to move sometimes, not just sometimes, but um, two is like kind of, you know, so and related to that point, I guess one B is that people value place. And so this gets back to like, um, you know, this is kind of a methodologically individualist point, but I think if people want to live, uh, you know, in Detroit or if people want to live in, in the Midwest because they have, you know, familial connection or just connection to place, right? That forcing them to move to San Francisco or New York is actually going to have negative welfare effects on them and that we shouldn't, you know, that this is a bad thing. Um, and that there, there's something valuable about that sense of place and connection to place. Um, and, you know, in a sense, like you, you can think about different cities or different localities as themselves unique commodities. And so if I get utility from that commodity and then you're just telling me, well, you can't consume it anymore. Um, that's a negative welfare effect. Right. And so, you know, you may prefer San Francisco or New York, but why should I have the same preferences as you? And so that's another reason, you know, we should care about declining, um, you know, cities. And, and I think kind of a second reason, though it's related, is that if we're thinking about kind of welfare of the community in general, the kind of the best kind of model, you know, it, it's hard to, even though macroeconomic models are at the level of the country, I don't think most of us think about that when we're thinking about our communities, right? We might even be, we're thinking about our city, our town, or even something smaller than that, right? So um, in that sense, if what we care about is the welfare of, of the country as a whole, what does that actually mean? It means the welfare of various communities. And so I think that that's also why that matters. So maybe, you know, maybe to someone who's really committed to kind of scale externalities and increasing returns to scale and production, like that's not a very satisfactory answer. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it seems like to me that it, it should matter.
so I can definitely see that, uh, you know, there's, you know, coming back to your normative frameworks is certainly uh, a value that many are uh, social stability, right? And when people are forced to move uh, and when places plan and when communities uh, don't really see a positive future, um, they get angry and, uh, you know, it contributes to um, a coarsening of, of political life for the nation as a whole. Um, but I was wondering if there was also like an economic reason for why spatial Keynesian policies are good overall. Like, is, is there a, an argument to be made that, um, you know, subregions of America are have wage-led growth and that therefore redistributing towards labor is good and that therefore redistributing uh, economic activity away from large cities towards declining communities uh, would have an increase, would have a, an outsized impact on aggregate demand. Sure, sure. So two points here. So I'm going to respond uh, kind of on the back to the first question, and then I'm going to answer this one. So one way to think about in, in terms of the economic or just in terms of the welfare effect is like kind of we can see what happens when we don't take a spatial Keynesian approach, which is like, you know, the kind of all the trends that lead to, you know, Deaton and Case writing a book like Deaths of Despair and, and the Future of Capitalism, right? Like that there, there clearly have been negative welfare effects of kind of increasing concentration and agglomeration in the U.S., right? Like we, we observe that that has been happening and that there has been negative welfare effects. So, you know, that's kind of one argument is that we know what happens when we don't take this sort of approach. To your question, the answer is yes, right? So for example, suppose that, you know, there's two, there's a multiple of reasons why. Maybe growth is wage-led in some regions. So I have a paper uh, in the review of Keynesian economics uh, that, that came out in 2020 that looks at kind of the question of wage versus profit-led growth uh, in, in the United States. And it looks at this at the state level. Um, and it looks like at the state level, on average, states appear wage-led, but they're kind of constrained by this type of coordination failure that I talk about in this paper. So on the one hand, we may be sacrificing growth in the aggregate by not being able to redistribute towards wages, right? If, if the U.S., if states are wage-led uh, or, or different localities are wage-led, but because of tax competition, we're not able to raise taxes to allow us to redistrib redistribute, uh, that's going to constrain the aggregate rate of growth. The second is suppose some regions have industries that have uh, Caldor Verdorn uh, productivity growth dynamics. That is productivity growth is endogenous to demand or endogenous to capacity utilization, right? Uh, if we redistribute towards those regions, that'll increase productivity growth, not only in those regions, but in the aggregate, right? So it's possible that by not attempting to afford some sort of equalization of economic activity across space. We're sacrificing some amount of productivity growth, depending upon the industries and regions that would be targeted, as well as kind of just GDP growth if uh, growth is wage-led in certain regions and we're constrained in how much we can redistribute. Those strike me as both like really important points and, you know, extremely compelling. So it's like, on the one hand, we're currently constrained by this sort of political configuration where you can't raise taxes locally and or redistribute um, to people. That means that we have a lot of sort of potentially excess capacity in parts of the country um, that we could bring online if we could get money there. Um, and then 
even above that. So that's that's essentially, you know, to some extent, sort of like a free lunch at the national level. Like we could just have more GDP and more, you know, a, a larger economy just by sort of better using the capacity that we already have. And then in addition to that, you would also be sort of uh, doing a better job of creating the future productive capacity or like, you know, uh, helping industries to grow and increase our overall output um, even beyond what what we now uh, can see as possible. But, you know, that's pretty crazy to be able to, you know, have a policy that would do all of that um, at once. Yeah, it's it's like, it's like, yeah, I really like that, Robert. It's like both uh, statics and dynamics, right? We, we tend to think of like externality problems as kind of a problem of economic statics or something like that, where if you did, you know, tax subsidy, but, but I think what Robert and what Luke you were getting is, the, and, and sort of, you know, the growth Keynesian project is there's a there's an incredible dynamic aspect to um, these problems as well, right? And and you kind of get at this in in, in the paper very clearly. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a, a very good way to think about these issues, I think. Yeah, it, I mean, in kind of some of the thinking in this paper, you know, it, it's not uh, you know a mathematical theory paper, although it's kind of a theory paper in another sense. But it's motivated by my work with one of my co-authors, Daniel Tavani at Colorado State, where we've basically, in a number of different kind of classical post-Keynesian frameworks, so two class models with capitalists and workers we've modeled aggregate demand as an externality. And so those models are completely aspatial, but it's the same sort of thinking that if, that if aggregate demand to an individual firm or, or region is an externality, basically you're gonna have in equilibrium under utilization of capacity and too little spending. Um, and we've shown the settings in which that this can also imply actually inefficiently low wage shares and inefficiently low worker wealth shares. Um, and so it, it is a dynamic externality in that sense, right? That it can apply too little imply too little accumulation uh, if there are these sorts of externalities. So it can be a dynamic externality in addition to kind of the traditional static sense that might be thought of. Yeah, I really like this framing of aggregate demand as a externality because it, it totally makes sense, right? It's like I accompany, you know, me as one company, I pay the entire wages of my workers and I only get, you know, some like, presumably very small fraction of that back in terms of the products that they're buying from from me alone. And like, you know, that's a, you know, textbook definition of what, uh, you know, how an externality works and, you know, why you need something like, you know, a minimum wage or redistribution or whatever, whatever policies to, to correct that in order for the economy to be functioning. Yeah. Um, the, the economist Tom Michael quotes, uh, I think it's Ed Nell, who in a paper who apparently this is something he said informally when Tom Michael was in graduate school, but uh, I think it might've been a qualifying exam question was what is the significance of the fact that wages are both the biggest component of firms costs and the biggest component of aggregate demand. And in some sense, that's, that's the Keynesian problem, right? It's convincing people that the aggregate demand side, like to see, basically it's the firms can always see the cost, right? But it's, they can't see the demand effect. And so both the spatial Keynesian problem, but also just the general problem of convincing people that we should do this type of demand management policy is getting people to understand, right, the aggregate demand component. Because firms can always see I'm spending more on wages, but they can't always see, right, what that means. All they see is that they're individually doing it. They don't see that it's happening. If all firms are doing it, that it implies this aggregate spillover effect. Over the course of U.S. history and presumably world history as well, we've seen sort of alternating peri periods of geographic convergence and divergence. And you know, in the in the United States, we had a period of convergence going, you know, lasting 
till something like the 1970s, presumably, or, you know, 1970s, 1980s, and then we've had divergence since then. Um, and I think it, one thing that I think is really interesting about your article and the idea of spatial Keynesian or the Keynesianism or the history of that is that, you know, a lot of people within the like neoclassical framework see this pattern of convergence and then divergence as being basically a sort of result of the balance between like agglomeration or economies of scale on the one hand and like, you know, forces that are pushing about against, against that, like a sort of distributive um, piece of like, you know, some people say it's like, oh, it's technology, you know, has agglomeration when it's being developed and then it has, uh, you know, diseconomies of scale once it's sort of become commoditized or something like that. And there's this balance back and forth. Um, or maybe it's about sort of the costs of, you know, traffic or congestion costs or that sort of thing. And like, and there's a story that it's basically this balance between these two sets of forces that determines sort of whether there's aggregate convergence or, or, or divergence on the, on the whole. Um, but I think, you know, you're basically bringing in and, you know, the spatial Keynesianism tradition is bringing in that, you know, actually there's this whole other big set of things, which is just, you know, explicit government policy. And like, you know, it used to be that the government had a goal as a, like a policy goal. If we want to have, you know, a more even distribution of economic activity, you know, for a bunch of possible reasons, you know, we're, we care about the the welfare of individual places, or we think it's, you know, a national security priority or something. And like the government is just going to do policies to make that happen. And like, maybe that's why we had convergence. Um, and it's not just the support uh, about this sort of like, yeah, this like eternal struggle between these, these different types of forces. So yeah, I guess I'm curious, do you, do you feel like this is sort of, is it basically just a sort of government decision? Um, and you know, the extent to which the government is, pers is pursuing policies to promote convergence or divergence, or do you think there's also this kind of tension between, yeah, like economies and diseconomies of scale? I mean, the characteristics of production do matter. I don't want to say they don't matter, but I think the story that a lot of kind of neoclassical economists want to tell there is too deterministic. I don't think it's just about, right, right like the, the direction, the bias of technical change is not, right, it is something that can also be changed by policy, right? So that's just not, it's not something that's just like handed down from heaven, right? Like if we want you know, to develop technologies that are labor augmenting instead of labor replacing. Well, those are decisions that policymakers can, you know, help incentivize that firms can choose to undertake those investments, right? So it's not just a given that, uh, you know, we're going to have, you know, certain direction or bias of technical change that'll lead to, uh, you know, agglomeration that'll inevitably cause, you know, deterioration in the Midwest or whatever, right? Like, I think, you know, in, policy doesn't have perfect control over those things, but I think, you know, I, I push back against the narrative that's deterministic in a sense, right? That we were just like at the whim of these market forces because ultimately market forces are the result of choices by specific actors, right? And so, um, you know, if, if those go badly, like we should make other choices that help kind of mitigate the harms that are caused, I think. So I would push back against that, that sort of deterministic narrative. Like I do think those forces matter. I think individuals respond to constraints um, you know, and, and so like maybe partially it's, it's things no one intended, but once we see these patterns playing out, we can kind of rethink, well, what's causing, you know, these outcomes. And, and so I, I do think a lot of it has to do with policy or the lack thereof, um, for sure. So if so much of this goes back to policy choice, um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about why different policies were chosen at the specific times. I mean, we we've talked a little bit about the decline of the Keynesian consensus in the 1970s um, and about the, the decision during the New Deal 
to, to implement these policies. Draw out maybe some of the, um, the political calculus behind these, these changes. Um, I mean, because it strikes me that like, you know, Roosevelt wanted to include the South and the West in his political coalition. And a lot of a lot of his policies were designed around the agrarian transition, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in your paper, you you talk about the TVA, but then the other major examples I think that you give, um, correct me if I'm wrong, are uh, farm bills, right? Um, but by the 1980s, um, those regions have more or less caught up to the rest of the U.S. And then we decide to go with this um, urban entrepreneurial model, and it's it's precisely in uh, the West, right, in, in in California, that starts those tax revolts. Um, so yeah, I was wondering, you know, is it, is it about the spatial reallocation of economic activity that like convergence was more or less successful and therefore we decided to, we didn't need it or is it, uh, you know, this kind of Buchanan type thing where it's like ideological commitments to individual liberty and maybe a little bit of racism in the back door, you know, sort of voce. Um, yeah, I don't know, just throwing, yeah, throwing no, ideas no, out there. So this is, this is a really good question. So you know, um, on the one hand, like, I, I think a lot of it just has to do with the kind of general push to downsize and privatize and outsource federal government activities. And part of this included regional policy. So, you know, basically regional policy was quote unquote outsourced to states and the cities, right? And they, they were put in charge of their own economic development. Um, and, you know, basically they were told like, hey, we're going to, you know, deregulate a number of these industries we're going to push development prioritization down to you and they were sold that like hey this is good that like as long as you know and this was happening at the same time we were you know deregulating international trade for instance so they were basically told you know hey you know you know city x if you can keep your tax rates competitive you'll attract sufficient fdi and your city will be able to you know develop export industries uh, that are in, going to insulate you from national business cycles and, and kind of in the absence of any federal intervention, right? So I think it was part of this like kind of overall bigger drive to to downsize and, and to deregulate. And so that's why I talk about kind of the, the response to the inflation and unemployment crisis of the 70s. Um, but, you know, if I'm just thinking through the political, you know, this is something I've thought about, like the political calculus of, of the present, right? Like, why wouldn't we keep doing this now? What's preventing us from 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 doing this? And the, I, I don't really have a good answer, right? Like, because it seems like there's like some big potential kind of wins with spatial Keynesian policy on the table now, right? Like something like the Green New Deal, right? Like, why? how is it not politically advantageous to the Democratic Party to like tell Joe Manchin that he can have like you know, X millions, billions of dollars investment in green energy in West Virginia to transition away from coal to get jobs. Like there's a political economy story that it seems like there is like, you know, uh, political incentive for policymakers to take up this type of policy that, and they're choosing not to, right? So I'm not sure like, you know, in your point that a lot of this begins in the West, like, was there some decision that like, okay, you know, FDR wanted to kind of, help develop the South. There's a lot of farm bills that by the 1980 that, okay, we'd accomplish those goals. And now, you know, it's politically expedient to just kind of let everyone move to California. I don't know. You know, I I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer um, about the kind of political calculus. It it seems off, like it's to me, it seems like I'm missing something in whatever the political calculus that's going on is. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 
you make a convincing case to me. I'm, yeah, I think we're all sort of sort of wondering of some of this. <laughs> um, and you know, I'll say again, like I'm not a historian, so yeah, I don't. I like I'm hesitant to put like too fine a point on dates because I don't want to upset someone. And like, you know, I'm getting like to me, it just seems like you, you can see a general trend in the policies that were being passed, kind of in the early to to, to mid 20th century versus the way policy has trended since 1970s, 1980s. You know. This is just an idea throwing this out there, but um, you know, if if the previous bout of spatial Keynesianism was about political coalitions, but also about the agrarian tra- agrarian transition, you know, one thing that's happened since the 1970s, 1980s is another structural transformation in the American economy as we move out of industry and towards services. Um, so, is it maybe just that, like, we haven't sort of ideologically coherent a vision of like industri- what industrial policy and spatial Keynesianism would mean in a service economy? Yeah, I, I mean, because I, I think that's a really hard, it's, I, I don't think the answer is as obvious as it maybe was like when we're transitioning, transitioning from an agrarian economy to a manufacturing economy, right? Um, and, and the model for transitioning to kind of the high skilled service economy, right? I mean, that the US kind of is now, um, the way we've done it is potentially problematic, right? There's job polarization kind of in the mm. skill distribution. So we have a lot of high skilled service job. High, I hate using skilled, sorry. Uh, it's, I'm just, I'm an economist. So this has been beaten in my brain, but I don't actually think I'll say high credentialed service jobs uh, and, and kind of jobs that don't require as many credentialed. Um, and I don't know that like, we want to continue encouraging that exact pattern of development, but that's kind of the way it's taken place. And so, yeah, I think it's harder to think through the the transition and the spatial implications in particular of the transition from a manufacturing economy to the kind of service economy that we have now. Um, But partially because, right, the same sort of agglomeration forces, and this is also why the story, like people who are committed to increasing returns or like agglomeration externalities, right? both those things smack of a manufacturing economy like Hmm. it's like the the same sort of like agglomeration type externalities don't seem to be apparent to me in like you know google or uber i mean like Hmm. i guess like partially with like i don't know location of servers or something i don't know but like it's not the same right and so it's just a tricky problem yeah i think i think that point jives really well with you know the the broader argument you're making, uh, you know, that you you kind of exemplify by, you know, moving resources away from a city like San Francisco to Detroit or something. It's it's not just to reap agglomeration effects, although it is, if you think of Detroit as a, ma- a site of potential manufacturing, but also the fact that in a lot of these urban, these, these highly developed in service-based, increasingly service-based urban economies, you're seeing less, maybe less agglomeration effects and more sort of cost diseases like in housing uh, in, in certain sectors of the economy. And I feel like that that goes back to, to Nick's point that we haven't really, that policymakers, but also I think um, maybe, maybe, maybe economists wedded to this idea of an industrial city, right? They haven't really thought through um, the implications of an increasingly service-based economy. And not, not to mention, I think you, you also, you also describe um, environmental effects, right? Um, um, areas that are, that are fire prone or have all these environmental externalities that are, that are not n- now only being uh, really analyzed and put on the table. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So this, this was uh, actually 
a rare example of an extremely helpful referee report, which I, I, it doesn't happen often, but this paper had a, one really good referee who pointed out like, hey, like, you know, it's possible that spatial Keynesian policy actually involves like, it, it does involve in, in a climate unstable world, like helping people adjust to kind of areas becoming uninhabitable. So like, there's this great article by Mike Davis on kind of continual wasteful home reconstruction in Malibu, right? That it's just like, you know, and I, again, it's it's a tension because it's, these people have the same like value of place and locality, but it's also like it's getting burned down every single year, and that has a big negative welfare effect, right? And so, um, spatial Keynesian policy can potentially uh, address this as well. I'll say maybe one of the issues or the difficulties with coming up with policy in this kind of spatial sense in a transition is that the policies that are spatially necessary don't necessarily look like spatially as spatially targeted as maybe even I would like, right? So um, something like uni more universal kind of anti-poverty programs or universal government expenditures might be necessary as a, there's actually spatial reasoning for these things uh, that's unique to the transition from manufacturing to, to kind of services, right? That like maybe there is no kind of answer in terms of developing you know, we're not going to have the same type of high school services in every single region. So maybe the answer is kind of a, a kind of a big increase in the role of government and governmental support through kind of general anti-poverty programs in a way that we haven't had. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know that that's something that's been conceptualized very much. I mean, here I'm just cripping from Robert's Washington Center piece, which I found on that point in particular, like I think universal programs are actually there's like a strong spatial reasoning for adopting them now um so i i think that that in particular is like maybe one kind of reason why it hasn't been addressed as much is because people you know there's resistance to the idea of like a big increase in the role of government in that way that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm partial to that kind of um, that kind of thinking, certainly. But um, I, I guess I did sort of it sort of opens to me. I would be interested to hear a little bit about, you know, I think these sort of universal government. Yeah, maybe anti-poverty programs or transfer programs are definitely one type of spatial Keynesian program I could imagine being useful now. But it does seem like there is sort of a range of different types of programs that you describe in the past and that might be um, implementable today. And like, you know, certainly the the approach of like a green new deal style investment where it's like, no, we're actually going to like be pouring money into like some productive capacity of this particular region. Like that's a pretty different approach from a like anti-poverty program that, you know, would still have the, uh, you know, the overall effect of like boosting demand in a certain place, but it's a pretty different way of, way of going about yeah. it. I mean, I love the idea of scaled up direct investment programs like that. I mean, um, mostly because to me, it seems like the one that the U.S. has done, the Tennessee Valley Authority, is like one of the most successful policies that the federal government has ever pursued. And it's like, I caveat that like, you know, attempts to kind of apply the TVA in developing countries and kind of move that, that were done like there's been literature and people have pushed back and said that it was largely a failure. I think that's not surprising if we try to like kind of take a one size fits all approach and kind of just do the same, replicate exactly the same thing. Of course, you have to take into account local conditions and institutions and like what's going to work best for a particular area. 
But I do think, you know, it's not just me, the literature on the TVA suggests it had a big effect on locally on manufacturing employment, but that it may also have had aggregate effects on productivity. Um, and beyond that, like even people who want to criticize that the programs run a budget surplus for most of its life, right? So it's not like uh, it, it's, you know, even if you care a lot about cost efficiency, um, it doesn't, it doesn't, it seems like, okay, well, it checks that box too. So, you know, I think those sorts of programs could especially be useful. Like again, a Green New Deal is going to have uh, is one example that we could think about it in a spatially targeted sense. So yes, the goal is to reduce kind of emissions, invest in kind of uh, clean energy. You know, ideally, this is also a way in which the government is influencing the direction of technical change, right? By basically pushing it towards you know, green directed technical change here. Um, so it's kind of a win-win in two senses, right? That like, for me, I, you know, since I'm thinking about these spatial issues that you can use it in that fashion, but that it also achieves these other kind of macro goals. Um, I also think the political resistance to something like that is probably the highest out of kind of the subset of policies, right? But I, I do think like direct employment of workers at the regional level by the federal government is something that's a feasible option for correcting regional income divergence and we haven't it has it's not necessarily been on the table recently but you know that's i think it would work that might be a lead in actually could you just talk i mean the the paper is in and to some extent, like a sort of theoretical paper, but you do have this empirical piece towards the end where you you basically look at like what is the effect of yeah you know directly employing more people by the federal government and um you, yeah you, it seems like the empirical case is sort of relatively strong from your yeah I think so I don't want to overstate the like you know I'm, I'm not there's no natural experiment here necessarily like I do some simple instrumental variable stuff and I also partially replicate. Um, a paper by Nakamura and Stenson just extending their results and showing that they, they hold up in different settings. But basically, if you look at a number of different measures of federal government activity at the state level, so uh, I look at federal intergovernmental transfers as a share of state GDP. So this is just a measure of like how much money are state governments getting from the federal government. If you look at uh, a measure of the relative allocation of federal government activity is the location quotient. I use the one for wage and salary payments to look at kind of to think about federal government. What's the federal government payroll look right look like here, but you could also use employment um, or uh, military procurement spending. Um, all of those are positively related to the rate of state level per capita real GDP growth, right? And, and across a variety of different econometric specifications, you find a strong positive relationship um, and, you know, the, the military procurement result in particular, so this, this is originally a finding of Nakamura and Stenson in the 2014 paper that I extend, right, is kind of a plausibly exogenous shift in government spending to the extent that like national level ramping up of military spending is presumably uncorrelated to the desire of, uh, you know, Californians to produce more fighter jets. Right. That's that's not why we increase the military budget at the national level. And so, you know, that's a pretty clean one. Um, the other two like are, are less clean, but the correlation, it, you know, is is very strong um, and is robust to a number of different econometric specifications and instrumental variables strategies. So, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there's an econometric empirical case here as well that like at least we can't, you know, there's nothing that says, no, it doesn't work, right? You know, that the data does not reject 
the hypothesis um, is kind of the way I would put it, right? That, uh, you know, you may want more empirical evidence, but a number of different specifications don't let us reject like the hypothesis that yes, spatial Keynesian policy works. In response to the COVID pandemic, we've seen a massive increase in government spending and industrial policy in particular is back on the table, both left and right. So do you see the conventional wisdom changing today? And if so, um, you know, I, I don't know how closely you're tracking these things, but you know, does, does Biden have any spatial Keynesian treats in store for us? I don't know. I hope so. Um, okay. To the extent that like some of the infrastructure bill and the other kind of the industrial policy type stuff that's been pushed, like, I mean, I, I think that's a good start. Like what I would like to see is like, you know, or what I don't want to see is like, okay, all of the spending from these bills, you know, uh, if it's, you know, policy, policy focused on like, you know, R&D, like, I, I don't want to see all of that going to, you know, San Francisco or New York, right? Like, I think that the policy, the policy should intentionally think about where the location of these federal employees, um, because if, I mean, you're just, you're leaving money on the table, if not realistically, right? Like, there, and uh, it's also politically, and this is kind of a different thing, but like, it seems like if what you, you want, to, if you want to be politically smart, you're going to want to try and get votes and uh, you know, the Midwest. So if the Democratic Party is actually thinking about this, some of the spending should be targeted there. But I also think those are the regions that are most in need of kind of that sort of fiscal stimulus, right? Like, um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but uh, not, you know, I'll say it's a tepid, tepid hopefulness because, you know, I, I think only so much can get done you know, there's going to be inevitably there'll be pushback just because there is resistance to expanding the role of government in general. And so, you know, maybe we'll get a little bit, but I doubt we're ushering in a new era of spatial Keynesianism here. Well, we're, we're living in a moment where good morals, good politics and good economics are congruent. Uh, so let's cross our fingers, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep, keep a cautious optimism here, but we'll see. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Luke. Um, Thank you guys so much for having me. This was, uh, yeah, my this was a really enlightening conversation. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
the classical Marxian papers or contributions, they usually assume that all savings are invested at all times. And so Say's law holds, which is kind of like what I would say a, a pillar of classical political economy. Now, Marx had his issues with Say's law, but it's very hard to integrate the rejection of Say's law into Marxian economics, especially analytically. Okay. Whereas post-Keynesian economics is all about effective demand, right? So the fact that the decisions by savers and decisions about investment are, are made by different people, right? And so co coordinating these two sets of people, investors on the one hand and savers on the other hand, requires it's, it's, it's difficult and might not happen the way that the classical political economists have in mind. So I think that's the, the fundamental dichotomy, I would say. Welcome to Reviving Growth Keynesianism, a podcast about economic thought from the mid-20th century and why it matters to us today. Our goal is to fan the flames of a growing conversation on inequality, growth, and aggregate demand, so that we may hopefully arrive at a place of better well-being for all. Hi, I'm your co-host, Nick Johnson, and I'm coming to you today from the University of Chicago's Center for Spatial Data Science. My name is Chris Hong. I'm a PhD student at the University of Chicago Department of History, and I'm an intern at the Center for Spatial Data Science. And I'm your co-host, Robert Manduka, coming to you from the Department of Sociology at the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us. Right after we, uh, we did the last interview, we discovered a really great uh, series of co-authored articles uh, by Luke and Daniele Tavani, who uh, we just had to get back on the podcast immediately to talk about secular stagnation, functional income shares, demographics. Um, so although it, it sounds like uh, this was continuous, in fact, this is one month later, uh, but we're, we're talking now to both Luke and uh, Daniela. So welcome, welcome, Daniela, to, uh, to arrive in <laughs> yeah, growth. Keynesianism. Nice to be here. It's really nice to be here. Uh, you guys met when Luke was an undergrad. Is that right? Uh, nice. Not really. So he... He, he, he joined us, our graduate program. Um, I, I was already at ah, Colorado State for, for about uh, five years when he joined, maybe a little more. I actually had just gotten tenure um, when he joined and I uh, uh, just had you know, my, my son. And so I was teaching this course on heterodox uh, approaches to economics uh, only on Wednesdays uh, when he took it. And so he was a three hour class. Uh, I was basically sort of, completely sleep deprived and I would meet the class like for three hours on Wednesdays at from three to 6 p.m. And uh, he belonged to a, a very good core, one of the very, sorry, the really first very good course of students that uh, that we had. And so um, we started talking later um, about research and, and things like that. And so uh, we ended up writing end uh, papers together. Uh, and um, that's it basically. Um, well, Did you say 10 a... papers that you co-authored together? No, N, N papers. N. Okay, I was going to say. Uh, X, X seems paper. like a lot. You, you, yeah. It, no, it, no. It's a soon. We're, we're, 10, though. we're pushing, yeah, we're pushing close we'll, to 10 We'll get now. there. Right. <laughs> okay, oh, we'll get there like next year. So, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of curious about, uh, about your own intellectual journey to heterodox macro. I mean, how, how did you wind up teaching this uh, one-day mega course every week at Colorado State? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, um, in high school, like my passion was uh, philosophy, 
in in Italy, um, we do we do five years of high school, um, and um, and you can you can choose the like some sort of a professional track and a, and a more um, in, how do you say co- um, intellectual track like the uh, track that's called Lyceum Liceo. And uh, I did classical studies, so I was like, you know, reading to ancient Greek and Latin and uh, and the classics. And uh, when we started doing uh, in the last three years of high school, we started doing philosophy, first modern and then and um, and then a more contemporary philosophy. Like what really turned my interest in into economics was the was reading about the classical political economists, like you know these uh, these thinkers that had like very limited observational power in the sense that they didn't have like you know a, a giant data collection machine and so on, but they were able to abstract, make these like fantastic abstractions about uh, human life and human interaction that was like incredibly com- compelling, you know. For instance, like Malthus, Malthus like was wrong about a, a lot of things, but he was like ve- a very good uh, distiller of information, right, into like you know sort of simple ideas. And, and the same is uh, you can say about Ricardo or Adam Smith uh, and Marx, of course. And so my interest got you know really was very much into this. And then I decided to study economics as an undergrad. I realized that economics, especially the kind of economics that you study early on, was has nothing to do about this. So I got I, I kind of got turned off, uh, and then I, I I realized that I could study uh, economics for, for real, and then I went on to grad school, and and then you know here I am. I I could be I could be wrong about this, but is is there a strain of kind of a neo-Ricardian or kind of post-Ricardian economics that's especially present in Italy? I guess someone you cite in your papers correct. over and over again is uh, Luigi Pesanetti, right? Yeah, I was just curious if there's, I, I know there's some cross-pollination with, with the old sort of Cambridge uh, UK set, but I was Absolutely. wondering if you could, if you could speak a little bit about. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's several, there's several different strands of Neo-Ricardians, if you want to call them like that. Um, so basically, I think all starts with uh, uh, Piero Zraffa's tenure at Cambridge. Uh, and uh, the fact that he had a number of like a, a very, very small number of followers who then ended up like in Italian academia. And on the one hand, you have Luigi Pasinetti, who's kind of the more, I would say, analytical of all of them. Uh, he was at Universidad Universidad Cattolica in Milan. Um, and he, you know, of course, he had a fantastic career. He wrote a number of like seminal papers and so on and so forth. But there were a bunch of people that ended up in Rome, especially, and they were more like the Zraffians, like more than Pasinetti. Pasinetti was kind of more, I, 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 I think he was uh, much broader. He's still, still alive and pretty sharp, actually. Um, and, um, and so I ended up um, working somewhat closely with some of them. Um, the, so the Zraffa archives uh, were basically donated when 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 Zraffa died he had this will and he, he donated his archives to uh the late Pierangelo Garegnani who's uh, one of those like you know sort of I don't know the, the top top dogs in Zraffian economics in uh, in Italy and um I took he one of his courses uh on on you know the Zraffa the Zraffa system uh as a graduate student uh, at Sapienza in Rome, where I studied my grad studies, and then and then he wrote me a letter to go to the new school where I where I then got my PhD, and so um, that's kind of like my own interaction with 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 all of these people. There's still a group, and not in Sapienza anymore, 
my other co-author, Luca Zamparelli, works at Sapienza, but he's and he he also studied with Garignani early on. But the bigger group of uh, Neoricardians, if you want to call them like that, uh, is in uh, Roma 3, um, which is the third university in Rome. Uh, in, you know, not that there's a ranking, but it's just called you know you know Rome 3, and um, and so that's where the big group is. I see. So this kind of what 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 is in America is considered fairly heterodox has a much larger presence in uh, in Italian academia. Not any longer, I would say, but uh, especially in the 60s, 70s, um, this this was a, a pretty uh, large group also because many of the Cambridge people that were actually uh, act, you know, were still active, like John Robinson was active, active until the 70s. Uh, mm. Nikki Caldor was active until the, the late 60s and so on. So, um, so that's the reason. So the, the, the connection was between uh, some, you know, some universities, say Rome and Milan and Cambridge. And so there was a bunch of people that kind of circulated around these, uh, these, these three places, basically. Now, moving into uh, the papers themselves, um, what, what drew us to this one in particular on um, uh, secular stagnation? is that it's a kind of, you're attempting a synthesis of classical Marxian and post-Keynesian thinking. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why these traditions have been apart for so long um, and, and what it is you're doing here to, to reunite them. There's, there's several, several ways in which somebody can approach answering this question. Okay, so I'll, I will start on the, on the why these traditions were kind of apart. I think the, the big dichotomy be, between um, classical Marxian, Marxian approaches and post-Keynesian approaches is that at least in the analytical literature, uh, the one that uses modeling, the classical Marxian papers or contributions, they usually assume that all savings are invested at all times. And so Say's law holds, which is kind of like what I would say a, a pillar of classical political economy. Now, Marx had his issues with Say's law, but it's very hard to integrate the rejection of Say's law into Marxian economics, especially analytically, okay? Whereas post-Keynesian economics is all about effective demand, right? So the fact that the decisions by savers and decisions about investment are, are made by different people, right? And so co coordinating these two sets of people, investors on the one hand and savers on the other hand, requires it's, it's, it's difficult and might not happen the way that the classical political economists have in mind. So I think that's the, the fundamental dichotomy, I would say. I'm going to go to the paper in a second. In the paper, like we don't, we don't reject Say's law. Uh, uh, so we, 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 look at, we look at a very, very long run approach, uh, probably uh, in, maybe interested in sort of what, what we call secular trends uh, and saving all savings are invested. Not that this is the only way to, to look at the problem. This is not how we do it. Um, but um, the, the secular stagnation piece, uh, this is a bit of personal history to me. Like when I was at, um, at the new school, nobody was talking about secular stagnation. This is where to, to 2005 to 2008, uh, I went on the job market in 2009. Um, you know, but even though nobody was talking about secular stagnation, everybody was talking about distribution and how it relates to growth. So it's very natural to think about the, the you know, these two, two, two big strands of approaches in, in, in thinking about, okay, well, what are the big questions about growth? How does growth interact with distribution? Who wins, who loses, uh, you know? And, and, but then many years later, um, I realized that uh, all of these papers that I was working on 
over the years, they all had this common thing. Okay, well, I can explain secular stagnation through this, through, through this, or at least account for secular stagnation uh, in these uh, kind of models. And so, and then Luke and I started talking about this because we were, uh, you know, Luke basically came to our program right after Piketty's uh, Cavalry in the 21st Century uh, was published, and he was kind of the the expert on Piketty's on on on, on Capital Twenty One, and so um, we had endless conversations about this. And so and 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 I realized that oh wow, like that there, there's something we we can say about these facts that we call the Piketty facts in the in the paper. I will I will leave it to Luke now because he he actually was um, was very into discovering the stylized facts that actually then then motivated our analysis. So I will leave it to him. Um, well, I'll also add just to the, the points that Daniele made was that classical, one kind of analytical problem that, that prevents a synthesis is that, or historically has, is that classical political economy tends to be very amenable to micro foundations, whereas because of the assumption of an independent investment function, post-Keynesian economics tends to be not micro-founded. Um, you know, in theory, you could micro-found an, an investment function, but it actually turns out to be uh no one real, really hard uh, in, in some ways, right? So uh, kind of trying to find a synthesis between these two approaches. And, you know, I, you know, we, this paper, both the, both the paper in Metro Economica and the recent paper on aggregate demand externalities are micro-founded. And we're not, you know, we're, we're not kind of dogmatic about it, but we, we think that, you know, it's important. It makes a re important rhetorical point to show that you can kind of micro-found some of these um, these issues or problems that are related to post-Keynesian economics and the problem of effective demand. And so that's kind of another motivation we had there um, going into the paper and also what makes the two approaches kind of, it, it's a worthwhile problem to tackle thinking about how to reconcile them. And this is something that we've we on the podcast have talked about or thought about with with Keynesian economics more generally is that it's often criticized for being you know not micro founded or implemented in a way that doesn't have micro foundations but the a lot of the observations that Keynes himself was making about behavior and you know uncertainty in people's you know need to to have a cushion against something that they couldn't foresee are are super micro founded right or like they're they're very much grounded in individual lived experience and so yeah it makes sense that you know this would be a worthwhile thing to like okay now we're going to do on the analytical side we're going to start to actually model that or think about modeling that or show that it could be modeled hypothetically at least yeah yeah and, and I'll and I'll say um, personally I think and I I, I would say I, I won't speak for Daniele but I think this is true of him too just because. Uh, well, kind of one person who summarizes the problem very well is Duncan Foley, who is Daniel Lay's advisor at the New School, but he has this paper, well, he has two papers. Um, one I, is titled Social Interaction Models in Keynes Macroeconomics, which I, I think is just a working paper. I, I, maybe it was published somewhere, but the other is a paper in um, International Journal of Political Economy in 2014. And he, he, it's called titled Varieties of Keynesianism. And he makes this point and the paper here, he says, one crucial point is that the place to find a microeconomic foundation for the general theory is in the theory of equilibrium of externalities, which is of course micro-founded. And he says that hardly any of the literature following the general theory is followed up on this point systematically. And a second crucial point concerns the interpretation of the term expectations in the general theory, 
equilibrium of externalities are critically dependent on participants' expectations about the behavior of other participants, right? This is the beauty contest and the general theory. And a good example of this is essentially just an assurance game with multiple equilibria. So Foley's point here is that actually there are precedents kind of, no one has done a, a lot to systematically kind of develop this, but there are precedents that kind of represent micro foundations for Keynes thinking. And I think in the background, kind of our way of tackling this problem is, is to, to do what Foley describes there, to try to, to use kind of coordination failures or, or you know equilibrium with externalities as a way to depict what Keynes was talking about in a micro-founded fashion. I, I was just curious, maybe before we jump into uh, your your own approach, uh, the externalities approach, if uh, we could circle back to something Danielle Lee mentioned. It sounded like uh, Piketty and uh, Capital in the 21st Century was sort of a conversation starter for both of you. And I was just curious how you interpret um, that book and you know the reception, I guess, also of Piketty's work um, in light of these questions about you know micro foundations, uh, the the sort of contrasting merits of of classical approaches versus uh, post Keynesian approaches. Um, am, am I because he 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 ha he has micro foundations in that book, but he draws a lot of, of neoclassical assumptions as well, right? Sure. So I was curious to get your your guys's views on Piketty in particular and how it relates to so, your current work. Yeah, I mean the the. Uh, I think I think it's it's you know it's it's a giant book okay it's a, it's huge like the, the impact that capital in the 21st century had on the profession uh, I don't think it, it can be overstated uh, because it find like again once again after many years it brought back the co questions of distribution uh, to the forefront of the economic of the analysis and you know sort of very prominently in academic press, but not so prominently in the public press. Like this book, you know, Piketty has done like, you know, 15, 20 years of like incredible data work, right? In which uh, he uncovered these patterns using, using tax data and so on and so forth, together with size uh, and first and, and, uh, and then Zuckman and so on. And so I think, I think uh, that is uh, incredibly valuable uh, because now everybody's one way or another working on distribution right um which wasn't the case uh, before now what I, what i think you know we we come in is that um it's kind of like the the account the 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 causal account that we give to to the facts that piketty uncovers in his book uh, on the questions of micro foundation these are not important in the book in the sense that he's he's just using a simple solo model uh to and and solo model features like constant saving rates so um, it's not micro-founded. Like the decision of saving is assumed to, to say, you know, people save 10% of their income, 20% of their income, all of this is invested. The micro-foundation has to do with the, you know, these intertemporal saving models, which maybe we'll talk about later, or maybe not. Nobody really cares about that, um, um, but outside of economics, of course. Um, but Piketty, Piketty's models, uh, it, 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 frame, framing of the issue is very, uh, is very simple, right? Uh, he has a model like the solo model where the growth rate is exogenous, call it G, uh, where, whereas the rate of return to capital is endogenous, usually equal to the marginal product of capital. And so if R is greater than G, what happens is that the, uh, you know, the capital income ratio uh, will start growing because the rate of return to capital is the rate at which the wealth rises, increases. The, the growth rate of income is the rate, is the rate at which income grows. 
And so if the numerator grows faster than the denominator, the fraction rises, right? Which is what we see in the data. Um, and, uh, and then, um, but then what happens after this? Well, what happens after this is that in the neoclassical growth model, there is a relationship between the capital income ratio and the and income shares. Um, provided that you have a, a, a production function, which is you know this huge uh, uh, Pandora box um, of controversy uh, with elasticity of substitution higher than one, and therefore, like, so this is very simple, right? You know, the, the growth rate uh, in the model is tied up to population growth and technological change, which is exogenous. Uh, the real return is endogenous, which is determined by marginal products, basically, and, and uh, the profit maximization by by firms uh, R greater than G, the capital income ratio rises. If the elasticity of substitution in production between capital and labor is higher than one, then the profit share rises and the labor share falls. And this is basically this is basically Piketty in a nutshell. And so I think our our point is that maybe the story is different. And what what I think has happened and Luke, feel free to jump in at any time. I think that there's a, a strong component, which is from we take from the classical political economists, that has to do with the fact that wages are, to a large extent, in my view, determined by uh, institutional forces. Collective bargaining agreements were available. Openness of uh, the goods, the, you know, the, an economy to to globalization, the possibility of outsourcing labor, sourcing production where where uh, labor is cheaper, and so on. The neoliberal era of hyper-globalization, what is done is, is basically lowered the ability of workers in countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, generally, you know, G7, G8 countries to, to extract higher wages. And what happens is that what this does redu reduces the impetus for firms to actually try to innovate to save on labor costs. And this is what explains, in our view, the, the growth slowdown in Piketty, the growth slowdown is exogenous, like you know, the declining population, a slower pace of technical change. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, that's that's a, a, the starting point. He doesn't explain that, uh, or Gordon, you know, uh, for that matter. In our view, it's it's uh, distribution first that's uh, that's uh, responsible for what's happening. So what what's going what's going on in the secular stagnation paper is this: is that. Uh, you have labor market institutions that are weakening the workers' bargaining power. Uh, firms adopt less uh, labor-saving innovations, which lowers the growth rate. And what this does is it, it generates basically the same effect on uh, the, capital, the, the, the capital income ratio as Piketty, but through a simple balanced growth condition, which is that in the long run, the growth rate of capital stock uh, the investment rate in an economy uh, needs to be equal to the growth rate of labor productivity and the growth rate rate plus the growth rate of population. If this is not the case, either the economy is bleeding workers. Is right? this the uh, the Haradian growth? Yeah, that's the, this, this is the absolutely. It's actually a very simple uh, relationship that has to do with basically again fractions staying constant in the long run. Um, and so the, in the long run, the growth rate of capital stock G needs to be equal to the growth rate of labor productivity, which we call gamma, plus the growth rate of population N. If this is not the case, suppose that the growth rate of capital stock is less than these two, what's going to happen is that this economy is going to start shredding labor. Okay. 
because the investment in the economy is not enough to keep the, the, the effective population employed at the same rate it was before. And remember, we're talking about, you know, secular trends, you know, 40, 50 years. We're not talking about on year, year to year business cycle. All of these variables are subject to fluctuations, right? Um, but, but over the long run, let's assume that they, they, they all share some, some constant trends. And so if G is less than gamma plus N, uh, the economy will be bleeding workers, basically. The employment rate will fall. Hmm? The, the, the employed population will fall over time. If G is greater than gamma plus N, the, the employment rate will rise. The problem is that the employment rate is bounded above by one, right? So, so uh, or even, you don't need to get to one. You, you can just get to say, I don't know, like the highest possible employment population ratio, let's say 85%, after a while, you're going to run out of workers uh, to employ, right? And so you either open the borders, like to get all the workers you can from abroad, or there's going to be like, you know, rising wages. And so, but very much rising wages. Mm -hmm. And so the balanced growth condition is this, like in the, in the long run, it, it must be true that, that uh, accumulation and technical change uh, and population must be sort of going in parallel. Otherwise, otherwise, um, you know, you will you will have what's called Herodian instability because Roy Harrod in 1939 he was the first one that actually saw this problem um, in his very famous paper that was the basically the beginning of of growth theory. And so what happens here is is very simple. So imagine. So let's let's start again. Let, let's go back again to the argument. Labor market institutions are weakening. Uh, workers' bargaining power is reduced. Uh, firms have a lower incentive to adopt uh, labor-saving technical change, which makes the economy grow in the very long run. But in the short run, profits are rising, so investment should go up, okay? Um, however, um, profits can go, uh, the, the investment can't go up forever because it's limited by the balanced growth condition. So the only adjusting variable that you have left is the income capital ratio, which needs to rise in order to restore balanced growth. Now, I see. so... Oh. So it strikes me that like, you know, the contrast with Piketty is, is that, you know, he's using a solo growth model, right? So like Correct. savings is exogenous, growth rate of technology is exogenous, growth rate of population is exogenous, and therefore investment sort of just like follows uh, kind of the logic of all of those variables, right? Whereas you're re reintroducing labor, which then has these distributional impacts that impacts yes. investment, yes. which is growth in your model, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, so another difference with our, I mean, our model is a two class model, right? Whereas the solo model, there's just, there's households and, and firms, but there's not two, two classes in the solo model. Um, and, and, so that's, and by classes, you're meaning there's a, a labor class and a capital class just to, yeah, to clarify for everybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Luke. Well, just to build a little bit, I'll say like, and, and Daniel, I think summarized it pretty well, but in terms of responding to, to Piketty, like, you know, if you look at the literature criticizing capital in the 21st century, there's basically two types of paper. There's the paper, there's papers that try to like nitpick his empirical work. And even the best versions of those paper, you look at the series they turn out, like doing different sorts of imputations to the tax data and inequality is still rising, right? Like no matter what you do really, you know, even if you make the most conservative assumptions and, you know, whatever you want, 
you're going to get a series where top income shares are rising, right? So the empirical criticisms like, yeah, like maybe there's some different choices you can make about imputations of the tax data and this will generate a slightly different series, but it doesn't change the overall story. So you have this huge contribution on the data side, but then basically what we're talking about here is there's a whole, you know, bunch of different papers from all different perspectives, basically saying, yeah, okay, let's take the kind of, empirical fact of rising top income shares is true, the solo model is not the best way to explain that. And so our paper is trying to offer a, a more cohesive explanation. So we kind of take the Piketty facts as given, and I think that's reasonable, you know, look at, you know, to my mind, having looked at the empirical literature that tries to criticize it, I don't, I don't think there's any way you can get a story where inequality has not arisen since 1980, no matter what you really, no matter how you tweak the data, under reasonable assumptions, it's gone up. So it's about how we explain that. So is, is the main Piketty fact that needs explaining the top income share, so the, the rise of the 1%, or is it, or are there, are there additional like subsidiary facts that need to be in any given model that's sufficient? Well, income and wealth inequality. Wealth, okay. And so this is the, the two, two of the facts that we've explored um, is both changes in kind of income shares. And so really our, I mean, our papers are looking at functional, the functional distribution of income, which is slightly different, right? So we're not looking at the personal distribution of income that Piketty's looking at. Um, although, you know, to the extent that, um, you know, capital and late, you know, only a small portion of the population collects significant income from capital, it's gonna kind of trace. So I think it's not unreasonable. Um, and then there's wealth inequality, right? And so that that's the other kind of dimension there that needs explaining. The the point in Piketty is, I would say, uh, to answer Nick your your question, the point in Piketty is like linking up the rising wealth inequality to also uh, falling wage share or labor share, right? And so that's kind of so these two facts go together. And of course, like there's also the labor productivity problem. Uh, which has slowed down by, uh, especially relative to the, you know, the golden age of capitalism, say 1960s to late 1970s and some, and some 1950s to late 1970s. Um, and so, and this, this, this problem with the rising capital income ratio uh, or the way Piketty calls it wealth to income ratio, but this, this is almost inconsequential for what Lucas said, because like, however you slice the data, you find, you find rising wealth inequality um, and a rising uh, wealth to income ratio. The only place where um, where you don't find rising inequality is if you look at consumption, right? Lots of people have criticized uh, like Piketty on on the fact that he he doesn't seem he, he seems to overlook the fact that consumption patterns are quite stable across income groups, um, but. Uh, but I don't think that's a very strong critique, right? Like you know, if we if we are able to get income data directly, like what should we look at consumption? We know that there's, you know, many ways in which cons consumption may, may be sticky uh, and might might not adjust like directly to income. So um, I think- Well, and uh, consumption think... can continue to rise as long as the 1% loans all of their new capital to the bottom 99%, right? I mean, this could just represent financialization and debt-fueled yeah. consumption, yeah, which this is, is the, not the, sustainable this... and produces its own imbalances. This is the Atif Mian's uh, right savings glut paper. I am yeah, yeah, not yeah. super super familiar with it, um, but but yeah, I think I think it's possible. And, and um, it's worth pointing out too that I mean, 
the consumption inequality points correct, but I also think our data on consumption are worse than our data on in, right. I mean, the data on income, at least for the United States, that Piketty's using is tax data, right? These are administrative records where we, we have no comparable administrative records for consumption. And I don't know how we would get one, right? Unless we had like some sort of consumption tax thing. But so it not that that's not to say that even if we had that, that consumption inequality would necessarily have gone up. But it's just that, you know, uh, the, the consumption data is not as good. And, you know, and anyone who's worked with like the consumer expenditure survey will, will tell you that it's uh, it's a nightmare. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. When I was yeah. at Johns Hopkins, Chris Carroll would never stop emphasizing this. It's just I mean, a lot, a lot of the data is just like people going door to door and saying, hey, how much money did you spend on pants last month? And like, of course, that number's made up. Like, of course, that's not going to be the same kind of like, you know, rigorous, um, accurate, complete data that a tax record is going to be. So there's there's a one, one missing link in the argument. So I, I, I talked about income and, you know, the relationship between distribution and growth in the paper. We didn't talk too much about wealth. And so uh, hmm. let me say something about that quickly. Um, the big point here is that, um, once again, differently from Piketty, um, we have two classes of people in our paper, right? Workers and capitalists. And, and, and uh, what we do is we basically um, in, the, in the Metroeconomica paper, the saving decision is not micro-founded. So we, we, we are fully within, say, classic, actually, I would say post-Keynesian territory, right? Both workers and capitalists uh, save at constant rates. But the, <clears throat> the important thing is that this introduces the distribution of wealth into the picture, right? Um, the problem of the distribution of wealth would be, would be completely trivial if the working class was fully employed at all times, or if we if the working class like tended to be fully employed, because you know sooner or later their savings would overtake the capitalists altogether, and therefore making the you know generating the euthanasia of the rentier uh, to go back to Keynes's term and the disappearance of the capitalist class altogether but because the working class is not fully employed at all times right so there's not every worker is active then what happens is that this the saving behavior of the workers they actually now save therefore they accumulate capital therefore they earn profits on accumulated capital um, but the thing is that uh, as Pazinetti master, masterfully pointed out, uh, there might be a, uh, an economy converging to a two-class uh, long run, where you know, even though workers save, they will remain worker and their, you know, their, 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 their saving behavior is not going to matter at all. Uh, which is called the Pazinetti paradox. And there is a, an, all, the, only thing that, all, the only thing that will matter in the long run is the, is the capitalist saving behavior. And which is exactly the result that we find in the paper. Like the, in, in that respect, the paper is not new. What's new in the paper is that we highlight the fact that the Pazinetti two-class steady state implies a, a relationship between the top wealth share and the capital income ratio. That is exactly what Piketty finds in his paper, hmm? even though he doesn't have class, sorry, in, in his book, even though he doesn't have classes at all. Uh, in the solo model, everybody's a little bit of a worker. Everybody's a little bit of a capitalist. Right, so you have just one single unit that saves and invests, and so, so I think that's valuable, right? And so to tie it up to the story before, what I think, I think the what well, the story that we tell in the paper is that the erosion of labor power from the neoliberal era has actually reduced the workers' income available for accumulating capital, right? And it actually shifted ownership and accumulation of capital to the to the class that had the highest saving propensity, which is the top 
the top income and, and, and the pure capital earners, and which skews the distribution in their favor, in, in, in the capitalist favor, and also implies a rising income cap, uh, capital income ratio, like in Piketty. So they've got all the savings, uh, but wages are going down, so there's no need to invest. Yeah, so that is, uh, that so, is the- So that's the secular exact- stagnation part? That's exactly right. Um, The fact that the long run growth rate, right, of labor productivity, which in our analysis is tied up to labor market institutions is actually falling, given the demographic trends. And actually, if you look at demographic trends, uh, population growth is also falling. You can accumulate as much as you want, but at some point, like, you know, you realize that you don't need to accumulate that much model, that's that much capital anymore, right? And so that's investment falling, which uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, it generates, it's, it's a cycle of stagnation part. Like the fact that at some point uh, you, you, you basically, you're running the economy at a cooler pace than, than you were basically in the 60s and 70s, basically. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm sort of curious. So, so in this first paper that we've been talking about, it seems like a lot of the action is more or less on sort of the product production or productivity side, right? It's about um, labor power, bargaining power. It's about how that changes the behavior of investors in such a way that like overall productivity goes, doesn't go up as much. And so that's sort of why we're seeing slower growth. Um, But in your second paper is about aggregate demand externalities. And it seems like that's sort of taking, looking much more on the consumption side or, or, you know, what's, what's happening once you've made all this stuff. And so, yeah, maybe you could, you could walk us through a little bit about your argument there and, you know, any connections that you see between, uh, between the two. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll, again, I'll start and then I'll like Luke jump in. Um, So, you know, we started this conversation about the relationship between classical Marxian and post-Keynesian economics and, uh, you know, the ultimate difficulty in communication. So what we try to do in the paper following Duncan Foley's suggestion is to bridge the two by thinking about the following simple thing, right? So imagine I have a firm and I, I can, after a while, like, you know, I hopefully if I'm successful, I'll be good enough at forecasting demand for my own product, right? Therefore, timing production appropriately, uh, having a good inventory cycle, uh, knowing how many workers will I employ, and so on and so forth, like how much capital investment to to employ and so on. But it might be a bit harder to forecast, right, uh, or to formulate expectations about aggregate demand in the economy. Much, much harder because you have no idea, right? And so we started thinking about the problem. Well, but on the other hand, even though for me, aggregate demand is a given, right? My own firm might be doing well, but the economy might be like tanking, for instance. My own performance of firm performance is going to affect the total production and, and, and uh, in the economy, right? And so that's the externality part. The, the fact that I, t- I will take aggregate demand as a given or my, my belief about aggregate demand as a given, but my own behavior will influence the, what I take as a given. So that's the very definition of an externality, an unpriced market mechanism, right, that has economic consequences for people. And so that's, that's basically the, the entry point. Um, this is actually, you know, this paper on aggregate demand externality is the third paper in a series. We started thinking about, like, uh, uh, effects, you know, firms trying to formulate uh, expectations about what other firms they were doing. And we actually tested this hypothesis in another paper that, that we published in 2020, right? Luke, I don't remember anymore. I think it came yeah, out in 2020. Right. But then, you know, okay, well, you know, once once you have this 
it's it's fairly simple. With an externality, we know that there's going to be allocative inefficiency, right? And so what happens in our model is that very simply, the economy is going to tend to underproduce relative to potential. And we frame this in the post-Keynesian way of thinking about cap, you know, capital utilization as a proxy for aggregate demand. Once we have this, this simple setup laid out, we can embed it into a very simple two-class model, again, classical in nature, without an independent investment function. But what happens is very simply that the fact that the economy is underproducing uh, is basically making the labor market a little less tight in the long run, which means that the labor share could be better if the economy was operating a full, could be higher if the economy was operating a full capacity. And because the labor share could be higher, the workers' wealth share could be higher also if the economy was operating at full capacity. And so you get this you know, very simple paradoxical result uh, of an aggregate inefficiency that actually has repercussions on income and wealth distribution, which we felt it was missing, like not only in the, in the classical post-Keynesian literature, but especially in the mainstream literature. In a way, this paper relates to the Metro Economica paper and that we're telling a story about the relationship between income, wealth, and equality. But I mean, this paper is focused specifically on the aggregate demand externalities. And because we micro found the behavior of, uh, the consumption behavior of, of households, we're able to talk about efficiency and welfare effects. And so we're able to show that uh, basically when aggregate demand is conceptualized as an externality, that the equilibrium outcome is such that both the workers' wealth share and the labor share are inefficiently low, right? And so that in theory, um, it's possible to devise a, a policy that could implement the efficient outcome where aggregate demand is higher and inequality is lower, right? And welfare is higher in the economy overall. And so this, this is an important, important point to make, right? That if underutilization is caused by an externality, that there's not going to be an efficiency equity trade-off in fiscal stimulus. That's right. And so, of course, like, you know, the, the, our paper is extremely crude, a very, very simple model, um, but it's just to showcase the point. And the policy that Luke is talking about is a very simple tax subsidy to, to, to scheme for firms, right? But you can think about other ways in which aggregate demand as an externality might affect the economy, so for instance, through consumption problems and so on and so forth. And so the point that we're trying to make is that if you can expect an economy not to always run hot on its own, then there is room for fiscal policy, not so much into it as a stabilization mechanism, but as an allocation mechanism, right? You know, uh, and this, you know, in our paper is budget neutral. Does it need to be like, we don't know, we'll, 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 we'll keep researching on this, right? But I think that, that's, I think that's, that's an important point in terms of policies. I think it ties up very well to the American Rescue Plan. It ties up to the infrastructure plan and so on and so forth, which basically I think it, it's reversing uh, the, the trend that I would say, you know, it initiated, was initiated by Republican leaning economists and stuff like that, but it was completely uh, bought into by uh, Democratic uh, leaning uh, economists like in the 1990s and under the Obama era that maybe there's much more room for state intervention in the economy than we thought there was, right? And this was something that the Keynesians have been saying forever. They were derided, <laughs> uh, mostly because their models were not microfounded and so on and so forth. And so 
one of the, those things that Luke and I are trying to do is, you know, to try to address this criticism about micro foundations, right? Like, um, and the way to do it is one way to do it, at least, is this, to think about fundamental uh, market failures, basically, right? <laughs> that that are so pressing that then, you know, can, can, can uh, imply uh, a much bigger role for policy than previously uh, thought. Speaking of policy, to what extent can this be solved by the institutions that we already have, say, by a more activist central bank or a central bank that puts less weight on inflation and more weight on giving us a tight labor market? Does it need to be fiscal policy and redistributive, or are there less radical ways to go about solving this externality problem? One of the things that we've learned about the Federal Reserve, especially, not so much about the ECB yet, at least, is that there seems to be a much more tension about the fact that monetary policy will have distributive impact. And so I think Jay Powell is, uh, and, and, and a lot of people that are working at the Fed are now uh, thinking about this much more carefully. There's a, there's a number of academics um, in top institutions, like you know, big mainstream people like Benjamin Moll at the London School of Economics, Gianluca Violante at Princeton and stuff like that. They are now starting to explore the, the distributive channels of monetary policy into so-called Hank model, heterogeneous agent New Keynesian models and so, off, and so, and so on and so forth. So I think this is, uh, this is very important. I think that on the other hand, I, I agree that monetary policy should be uh, generally more accommodating and put less, maybe put a, a little more dovish on inflation than it has been after the Volcker shock of the late 70s. But I think that we have, uh, I think that from a, from a say, um, strategic political point uh, of view, we should start thinking about the fact that we've been at least in the United States, we've been reduced, reducing uh, consciously the fiscal space for the federal government by basically trying as much as possible to lower its revenues, right? Uh, and its ability to tax people and do redistribution to tra- through taxation. I think that is the most, the, a very natural way to redistribute income, right? Which is the tax code. And I think that by basically lowering revenues from the top income and wealth earners in in the country we have actually like reduced the fiscal space for the government to do uh, what it's supposed to do which is supply public goods education besides roads and bridges like uh, maybe even childcare and so on and so forth but also redistribute income and so and so i think i think my preference for fiscal policy uh, is is because of the you know the basically the nature of the state and what it should do when intervening in a in a capitalist economy. Yeah, a, a lot of it reminds me of what you're saying. Reminds me of you know classical conceptions of welfare economics, starting with Pigou, let's say, where you're thinking of aggregate demand really as a public good almost, right? And that it should be up to the state to to provide that that public good when there is this problem of coordination and and sort of uh, market failure. Um, in the end, but but I get yeah. I guess I was taken with the. I mean, you propose a very simple solution, which is to effectively subsidize the user cost right of of individual firms to reach that efficient yeah. rate of of utilization. Yeah. Is there a reason why the <laughs> economies have not done that? It, I, I guess my my intuition would be, and this is like reading a little bit about uh, 
people critiquing someone like Pigou's ideas is this is just extremely distorting of behavior, targeting individual firms and stuff like that. Sure. Um, but yeah, I was wondering, I was wondering if you have any sort of response to maybe policy implementation issues on that side of things. Absolutely. Like I, I wouldn't put any stock on the specific policy uh, that we propose in the paper. Zero. Um, because, I mean, first of all, depreciation is already subsidized uh, in the United States, and it doesn't seem to be doing much more than distorting other, other kinds of behavior, like on the, on the, firm, on the firm side. Uh, it's just that the way that the model is cooked up, like, lends itself to do, to do some, like, a simple policy exercise on that. I would think that, and I think this is the, the most important question, I would say, post-Keynesian economics and where like the research needs to be done, is that how do you get a, a truly post-Keynesian result where basically by redistributing income right up to a certain point, you will actually not be hurting the growth pro- prospects of an economy, which is, you know, the, the uh, not really post-Keynesian, this is mostly the Kaleskian the Kaleskian problem, right? The fact that in a stagnant economy, trying to redistribute toward wages is going to be good for the level of economic activity and possibly for growth. And so I think this is where the research, at least my research will try to go, hopefully Luke agrees with this, because it, because we don't have a clear story of why, why that can happen, right? Yet. Uh, we can we can do these these things with uh, with firms. Well, we we do have a clear we 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 have a reasonably clear story in our mind, which is the secular stagnation paper, which basically tech, labor saving technical change fostered by by labor market conflict. Yes, but I think that's uh, there's a lot of research that needs to be done in order to integrate like you know the the Keynesian and the classical together in order to get like a reasonable explanation of why like certain kinds of policies that have been universally derided because, you know, like this is not the way the society works. Like, you know, well-intended redistribution policies end, end up harming growth, right? And therefore hurting the workers because there's no investment, there's no employment and so on. So that's where I see this thing going, like digging much deeper, finding better ways to, to model these processes and to devise policies that are going to be labor-friendly, but also not hurting the economy. Because I think there's still space. And one space is as Luke was saying before, is the an economy operating uh, at an efficient equilibrium because the efficiency equity trade-off is not is not there any longer, right? And so that I, I see what we what we wrote as a simple, very very simple starting point in this direction. Yeah, I'll kind of jump on uh, in terms of Nick's question about monetary policy, which is thinking about well, what is the problem that you want to solve, right? And so you know, th- there's a there's a bunch here, but like most of the problems we're looking at in both the Metroeconomica paper and this more recent paper are very long run. And in particular, you can think about kind of one of the big ones is slow labor productivity growth. And in our minds, that's distribution driven, whether it's through induced innovation or kind of indirectly through type Caldor, Verdorn type dynamics where you know, redistribution towards wages, increases aggregate demand, which then spills over to labor productivity growth. But monetary policy just can't do much on either of those fronts, right? If you think about where it's at, monetary policy the past, you know, decade or so has already been, for the most part, quite accommodating, right? Very low interest rates. 
to the extent that it's going to affect distribution, low interest rates should positively impact employment, which in theory, you know, through Phillips curve type relation will spill over to wages. I don't know how much of that we've seen. I think those effects, you know, are, are quite weak and monetary policy is doing the best it can by kind of staying out of the way by not raising interest rates too much because we know, you know, we know, we know the Fed is really good at kind of slowing economic activity if it wants. It has a much harder time stimulating it. But so I just think to the extent that the nature of these problems are very long run and you believe that the cause of the falling labor share are things like globalization um, and these other big structural changes, uh, changes in tax law, that there's just not much other than kind of taking an accommodating stance monetary policy can do. And so that's why the focus is on kind of the fiscal side of policy activism. And I mean, isn't isn't part of it also that we've kind of just let these tendencies go on for long enough that monetary policy is no longer po- powerful enough to get us out of it? But like, once you have secular stagnation for long enough that interest rates are pinned at zero forever, there's there's just not much more you can do, and so it has to be fiscal. Yeah, that's uh, that's the other thing, right? You know, the you know liquidity is a trap. Like, there's nothing that the monetary monetary authority can do. And so, yeah, I think I think that's another that's another valid point. With the s- small caveat, it's also the difference between like our thinking and Larry Summers' thinking. Like, you know, the way he thinks is be- very simple. He thinks in a loanable loanable funds framework, where there's a supply and demand for loanable funds, and there's an interest rate, right, that clears the market. And this interest rate is what's called the neutral interest rate, where which basically that then implies full employment in the labor market. And in Summers' idea. For a long time, the neutral interest rate has been negative, right? Which means that that's that's with the secular stagnation. Like you, you can go as low as zero in terms of monetary policy, but this is still not going to be enough in order to clear labor market. And so what happens is that there's too much savings in the economy uh, and too little investment, which is uh, which is a secular stagnation problem. I think that. The neutral interest rate is like the natural rate of unemployment. Like everybody would love to know what this is, but nobody actually knows, right? And so, um, and so I think there's a, and I welcome this. At the Fed, there's been a lot of moving away from uh, trying to base all of our policy onto a difficult to measure concept, such as the neutral interest rate R star or the natural rate of unemployment U star. Uh, because these are unobserved, right? And also because we've been we've been seeing that the neutral rate, the natural rate of unemployment, might be much lower than we thought it was, right? You know, right before um, the pandemic in the United States, the economy was running at 3.8, 3.9% unemployment, which is the lowest it's been until the, since the 1950s, with no sign of inflation, right? So I think this is the fundamental point of difference, which has to do with the fact that I don't believe that uh, there is a neutral interest rate, to be honest which also ties up with what Luke was saying. You know, the, the Federal Reserve is phenomenal at slowing down the economy, but the boosting is a little harder, right? Because what we've seen, especially, you know, even the great moderation, yes. Um, I think the great moderation was not so good for workers in the United States. Um, but also one of the, the issues with the great moderation is that what it ba- basically partially did, it was creating the housing bubble that led to the Great Recession of 2008, right? The real effects were were not as strong as the financial effects. So this is this is the other the other piece of the problem. This uh, the the saving uh, investment uh, con- in, uh, in connection coordination problem is mediated by financial markets. And one of the things that happened, and I'm not an expert on financial markets, but 
just as a you know kind of big picture thing, I think you know, one of the one of the one of the issues that we've seen, uh, one of the problems that we faced uh, during the neoliberal era is like the overbloating of financial markets without a corresponding growth in the real. So I I, I think I, that's that's why my preference is for fiscal policy. I think that that it's been overlooked for too long. Of course, it's subject to the political process. I'm not saying that it's easy, right? But I think that there are many things that once implemented through fiscal policy and law are going to be hard to undo. Think about Obamacare, for instance. <laughs> they can chip away at it. it. It's not going away. Like many of these changes are reversible. It's, taxes are different. Yes, we've, been, we've had tax reform, bad tax reform, but my preference would be for fiscal policy. I'm I'm curious when you when you say you mentioned how you don't really like the idea of a natural rate of unemployment or a neutral rate of interest is in your mind is the alternative like is the, is it that there you don't think that there is such a rate at which at which point you know the, it starts to be a problem for the the economy or it's just like this is so contingent on all the other things that are going on that like trying to target around a particular rate that you know is going to be going up and down all the time is is not really a useful thing to do yeah, so you know, look again. Feel free to jump in at any time. Um, I think that mm, one of the problems. So there's there's one is a theory problem, right? And the other one is a measurement problem. The measurement problem, I think it's it's very problematic, but less problematic than a theoretical problem, in the sense that the way that the natural rate of unemployment is measured and the long run growth path is measured is all contingent on whatever the CBO tells it is, right? And so, and whatever data they use, whatever uh, method they use, basically very simple solo decomposition, uh, growth accounting stuff. I'm not, I don't think you should put any stock on that either. And so that's, if that's created, that's used, the solo decomposition is used to, to measure the trend in output growth and so on. Then from that, it's very easy to back out some notion of natural rate of unemployment. I don't know. Okay. But in theory, like, you know, what's the natural rate of unemployment? Well, the natural rate of unemployment or NERU is, you know, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the rate at which like inflation stays constant. Well, it seems to me that the the post-2008 recovery, it has put this notion into question like big time. And the reason is that it's not just the unemployment rate that matters, but it also like other measures of unemployment, like, you know, or, or employment, the employment population ratio, the how do you include marginally touched workers? Do you don't, do you not include them and so on and so forth. So like, what's the right measure uh, to consider when thinking about the relationship, the Phillips curve relationship between inflation and unemployment? I, I see both theory issues and measurement issues and therefore, I would try to shy away from it. Like I would, I would keep it in the toolbox, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to dump it completely, uh, because it's possible that at some point you run into bottlenecks, right? You know, maybe with a two percent unemployment rate and a very high labor force participation, then you know inflation will rise. I'm not denying that, but it doesn't seem to be the case in the, you know, last twenty years of U.S. experience. I'd also add, in addition to theory and measurement, I think there's a problem with the way it's used as a policy guide. So if you listen to people who take natural rate, whether we're talking interest or unemployment, seriously as a policy guide, they talk about it like it's exogenous or fixed and that you know the actual unemployment rate is moving or the actual interest rate is moving relative to this fixed point. But I think 
and now I'm kind of moving, thinking about the Kletzkian literature, there's a parallel there, which is this discussion about the normal rate of capacity utilization, whether it's endogenous or not, right? But, but I think the idea is that the natural rate, whether interest, unemployment, or if you're thinking about capacity utilization moves and it is potentially endogenous to the policy choices you're making in the model. And so it's not a useful, it's kind of a Lucas critique thing here, where it's not a useful guide to policy because if you make a policy change, the natural rate is going to change. And so you can't take it as fixed and use it to make predictions about the effects of policy because it's likely to change in response to those policies. And so, and, and in fact, that's what our models say, right? Even a very mainstream model, like the simple, uh, the simple model in Blanchard's intermediate macro textbook, the natural rate of unemployment is an endogenous variable. And so you can't kind of take it as fixed as a policy guide. So is it useful as thinking about like, maybe there, there is some equilibrium kind of labor market clearing rate, yes, but it's probably endogenous. And so if we talk about it like it's not, and then try to use it as a policy guide, we're, we're going to run into errors in making policy. So that's in addition to the theory and measurement problems. So I agree, like throwing it out, like it can be a helpful, a useful benchmark for thinking, but it's not the stopping point. It's a starting point, I, th I think, if you're going to use it. Well, and, and, doesn't this get to the uh, hysteresis part of your papers that um, not only is it endogenous to policy, but also endogenous to the state of the economy that you can sort of, there's a ratchet effect in terms of uh, how much employment you can actually get without provoking inflation. Yes. So that's the other part, right? Like in the, in the algorithmic externalities paper, um, we have a series and levels, uh, which means that if you, so you, since you have a coordination problem, depending on where you coordinate the economic activity, like you're going to see like a much higher level trajectory than another. And this might reflect also on employment. And uh, this is extension of the model. We also have hysteresis on employment. Uh, so paradoxically, so I need to say this because otherwise it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Paradoxically, in the benchmark model, we actually have an exogenous natural rate of unemployment. Uh, because, but but it's not motivated by inflation. It's motivated by class conflict. It's kind of a Marxian uh, notion of a constant reserve army of labor, right? Which is a, a feature of this very famous paper by Richard Goodwin in 1967. But it's very it's fairly easy to get employment hysteresis as well, right? And as as Luke was saying, like if you have hysteresis in employment, then the concept of natural rate like doesn't make any sense any longer, <laughs> because you can influence it. It can both. It, it depends on you know individual choices that then aggregate up into the whole economy and policy choices. I, I had a question in the back of my mind that, that sort of departs a little bit from the analytical discussion. So I, I was wondering, uh, reading this paper, because of the focus on aggregate demand and, and capacity, if you guys might have a response to someone like, you know, Robert Brenner, renowned Marxist economic historian, <laughs> who, who also sees, he sees overcapacity and hence overproduction as, as the sort of main drag on world capitalism. And I guess, you know, he's developing his account from the 60s capitalism crisis in the 70s. And I think he sees it continuing up through the great moderation where in lines of business, basically, there are too many firms that refuse to exit, even though the profits are low. And even though there's this sort of global cutthroat competition going on, they just have too much fixed plant, too much capacity basically invested. And as a result, you just have, you know, firms competing with each other, the sort of race to the bottom, uh, where it's mostly price cutting going on or cost cutting and price cutting going on rather than sort of labor productivity enhancing investments. But his whole diagnostic seems to point to the fact that persistent overcapacity is, is the main issue, uh, the main historical problem 
in U.S. capitalism. But yeah, I, I was sort of curious if you guys might have uh, intuitive kind of response to that sort of historical uh, diagnostic um, coming from the Marxist side. And I should say, I think he, I think he's, he has very Marxist priors. So I think he sees, you know, uh, the profit rate in manufacturing as determining firms' investment decisions, um, and and that that is sort of his causal causal mode. I think this is one of those areas that like we can't speak about the price cutting behavior in this in this very paper because our firms in the paper are competitive, so they they have no market power and nor nor no price setting power. But I think this is one of those areas where I want to go next in the sense that like I think this is. This is a, a very important uh, issue to think about the interaction between market power and these uh, aggregate demand uh, problems, coordination problems. Because when we, you have market power, you already have uh, a market failure, right? Uh, you, you, and so the, the interaction between the aggregate demand externalities and market power might be uh, something very fruitful. In terms of overcapacity uh, or overproduction, I think that's uh, <clears throat> that is obviously the the big, the, again, going back to the dichotomy between the Marxism and the Keynesians, right? And the set that Keynesians say that, well, you know, the economy tends to coordinate at a very, like a, a too low a level of economic activity. You can do better than that, right? The Marxians are thinking about overaccumulation crisis and so on and so forth. And so while I know, while I don't have um, a straight answer to your question, which I think is a very good point, I would tend to think about the fact that if you look at for the US economy and for the EU economies after 2008, and you just project forward their, their potential output trends calculated in 2007, with their potential output trends calculated in 2017, you see a huge gap that never got filled. So I'm skeptical about the overproduction problem, right? Because where did, like, this could have been a completely different economy, right? We could have been like in the United States, we could be like, you know, two, two trillion dollars uh, of real GDP above where we are right now, if that if the 2007 trend uh, went on, right? Now, the question is, well, maybe the 2007 trend was unsustainable because it was based on a housing bubble that then popped and so on and so forth, you know, overbloating of financial markets and so on and so forth. But that economy was growing at that rate in that moment. And then it didn't afterwards. So, or maybe it's growing at the same rate, but that level will never, you know, the level gap is never going to be filled. And so that's where I'm skeptical on the overaccumulation over uh, part. Uh, but of course, I cannot rule it out in principle, and I won't, because I think thinking about the market structure, like, you know, which the Marxians like to do, I think it's very fruitful uh, for going forward. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, my, my thoughts are similar. I have to think about what specifically is meant by overaccumulation in this context. On, on the Keynesian side, in, in my prior, there's kind of sometimes referred to as the underconsumptionist story, but that's basically the story. I mean, not exactly, but we're telling the aggregate demand externalities paper, right? So that the equilibrium is characterized by insufficient capacity utilization. And so I have a hard time in my mind reconciling that with an over capitalization story. So I'd have to think harder about those two things before giving a reasonable answer. You, this was something that I was, I guess I was sort of curious to come back to again, again, sort of thinking about the two papers in contrast to one another is that, yeah, in the, in the aggregate demand paper, it seems like their, you know, overcapacity is not, it's always basically always something that you can fix by giving more money to people lower in the income distribution who will spend it and then, you know, make up, you know, 
put all that extra capacity to use more or less like we're we're not using we, there's underutilization um but then in the other paper it's, it, it it does seem like you're it seems like you're portraying more of a hard block in terms of like, like no, in terms of the total amount that could be possible to make, there's this, because of this long-term kind of underinvestment, because of lack of labor power, um, there, we, we just don't have the capacity there anymore. Um, and that's a constraint on, on, on long-run growth. Is, are, are, are those sort of, do you see those two as sort of in, in contrast to one another or they, do they kind of come together in some way? I think I think the the cellular stagnation paper is more about uh, the potential long run benefits of redistribution or whatever or strengthening labor markets, whereas this one is more about the the poten the potential uh, difficulties in coordinating the economy uh, onto its basically full utilization uh, rate, um, and so of, of course there's overlaps between the two, but. The, uh, I think the issue, so that this is this is a little more complicated and maybe, you know, the big problem is thing that, that I see is that it seems to me that going back to Chris's question a minute ago, you should be thinking about investment be very important in the short run, especially, uh, right? And investment tends to be responsive to profits much more than we thought it was. So, you know, the Marxists are, are very right on that. But the problem is that on the other hand, Long-run technical change is, in my view, the conflict-driven part, right? It responds to labor market institutions. And so you have this tension, right, between the short run and the long run. And potentially the utilization problem, it mediates, like, kind of, it's kind of in between. Like, it could be something that is relevant within, you know, within a certain period of time, maybe not, like, always, but um, but it might be relevant uh, over the medium run or whatever, however you want to call it. Um, but I think the, the fundamental tension is that, yes, you know, we should be making sure that firms have high enough profits in order to uh, think about investment and and high enough demand in order to invest, you know, in new in new capital stock and, and keep people employed and so on. But also we should keep in mind the fact that if you go too far in that direction, what's going to happen is that the incentives to save on labor uh, through technical change, because firms will save on labor no matter what. Like uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, de de delocalization and offshoring. I think we've seen too much of that, right? Which I think it's a detriment. It's been a detriment to labor augmenting technical change. And so, so I think that's that's where the two things kind of come together. Of course, I don't have a, a fully comprehensive model. To tell you this this story, but I think this is where this is where uh, kind of we're going, or someone else will go. I guess I'm I'm curious to hear about. So I in particular, I mean, I think thought both of these papers were really really fascinating. But I was just totally I I really love the like rhetorical approach of describing aggregate demand as an externality. Just like mm -hmm. to me, that makes you know that's that's such a powerful move in terms of lots of people understand externalities and know that they're a bad thing that require government intervention. And so I think, you know, and it, it is, it totally makes sense how you would have, it's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a firm. I can only, you know, I think about my firm, you know, my, my universe is my firm when I'm making my decisions. And so therefore I think only about how things, you know, reflect back on me and I don't consider the, the implications for others. Um, and so, you know, it's a classic externality and we know what to do with externalities. I was, you know, I just think that's really powerful. 
It also, and this is sort of an aside, but so one of our touchstones on that we come back to a lot on this podcast, and for me personally, is um, the work of uh, Chester Bowles, who was a you know office of price administration administrator in the in the forties, and he wrote this book where he talks about you know what the government should do in order to maintain uh, a growing economy. And he, one of the things he says is we need to raise minimum wages because otherwise mm. you'll have back. This is literally a quote. We need these to prevent the backward businessmen from undermining the wage structure and from living off the purchasing power provided by the payrolls of those who pay decent wages and it's just like you know exactly the same you know critique that you're making if you know if if we don't force these people to internalize the the impacts that they're having on everybody else then we'll get a underutilization problem or you know an under under consumption problem i'm curious i mean this is a relatively recent paper but but have you gotten much of a sense of what the reaction has been like are other people sort of is has there been pushback against the idea that this might be an externality or is this something that people are sort of willing to accept and therefore accept the implications of. Luke, what do you what do well, you think? I mean, I think so this is the third paper in that using this kind of structure where there's I mean, the, the theoretical structure there's a user cost function that depends both on own utilization and aggregate utilization. And it's only in this paper that we kind of figured out the framing as talking about it like an aggregate demand externality, even though that's what it is in, in every other paper. I think this is the first time people have caught on or responded. Like that seems to have just been the reaction to when we shared it, like people seem to have latched on to that. And so it seems to make intuitive sense. And so in that sense, I'm glad we kind of decided to, or figure, and not even decided, we kind of figured out that's what it, that's what we were doing. I mean, mm-hmm. Uh, not that we didn't know that, but just that conveying it in that way, um, people seem to have responded positively and like it makes sense. And I think it's clearer than talking about, I mean, the the actual kind of mathematical structure relating to a user cost function throws people off. But if you just explain that it's just capturing the fact that aggregate demand is an externality to an individual firm, it's like, oh, duh, of course it is, right? So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think this speaks very much to sort of a little bit of the sociology of our profession, right, as academics or people interested in academic work and the fact that sometimes you get this idea, right, and and this idea, like, it takes time to frame this idea in a way that is actually, it, it clicks with other people also understanding of the same problem, right, and so as Luke was pointing out, you know, both both Luke and I, we're, we don't work at top research institutions and therefore like, you know, we tend to teach a lot. And so we, we have only that n- number of hours in a day to think about stuff and, and you know, several iterations of the same model with ad- adding features, of course, like, you know, this, this paper is about the distribution of wealth. Um, uh, much more than the other two papers, but then you realize that you you your your rhetorical uh, argument like improves a lot. Like you know the way that you you're actually able to convey this idea to a larger audience improves a lot. And I think this is partly driven by time. You know the lack of time. Partly driven by the fact that ideas are they. they the first idea is not the best idea or the first iteration of an idea is not the best iteration of an idea, right? And so I think this is like the beauty of research is also that like. I, I always think about like these papers as progress reports and where your thinking is, right? And I think that's, and, and, and the fact that, you know, we'll keep asking these questions, like this is maybe one answer. It'll turn out in 10 years that it was completely off for a number of reasons, but, but that's the way, that's, I think that's the, the way to go. And, and I think that, that, that makes it kind of exciting also. So you're saying that the, uh, uh, the class conflict that forces you to provide human capital investment to the next generation 
has improved your rhetorical productivity. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, even though maybe the, the first the first baby that we wrote was uh, was clunkier than this, I think there were like some very nice things that we wrote. Uh, but it was definitely clunkier than this. Like the, the, here, like we actually distilled the idea in a way that is understandable to a much broader audience than than the, than the early one. Uh, and so, and this this is just the way you know, just the way it is. You keep thinking about it, and like at the very bottom, like this is what it was. Uh, you know, we were talking about an externality. So I have one one last question, and maybe there's no good answer to it. But I was just thinking as we were talking, like the way that globalization mainly enters these papers is as undermining labor and labor institutions and labor share. And, and for the US, I think that that tracks. But for a lot of small open economies, like in Europe or in East Asia, right? I mean, this is also a source of demand. Um, so that, you know, aggregate exactly. demand is an externality, but it's not an externality that you can solve through redistribution in Taiwan or whatever, right? Absolutely. Um, so I mean, to what extent is post-Keynesianism and this Kolechskian attempt to redistribute towards labor only possible in the U.S.? And or does the rest of the world just need to, like, uh, I don't know, invent a global state to do this? Uh, I think this is a this is a wonderful. <laughs> this is a, a, a very good question. And, you know, and I'm not a develop, development economist. And so um, I'm a little out of my league, but I think you're hitting the nail on the head here. And I think that the reason why, so of course we would like all countries to achieve their the highest possible standard of living that they can, right? And many many of the countries that you mentioned have done this through basically creating an export structure that allow them to uh, access global markets and sell products for cheaper and so on and so forth, competing with domestic workers in the United States and Italy and France and so on and so forth. That's for sure. I think that one reason why this is pos- this was possible is because, and I'm going back to capital labor conflict, because it, it was very easy to f- for firms to relocate production where the cost of labor was, ch- was cheaper. And in many instances, there was a global race to the bottom in terms of taxation, like capital income taxation, that allowed firms to offshore and to actually establish their business like into a fiscal haven, a tax haven where they um, they could basically, you know, get zero taxes and so on and so forth. And I 100% thought that I would never see it, this in my time, but having the G20 signing off on a 15% global minimum tax on capital is something that I find almost unbelievable. It surely was unbelievable, not even like a year ago, it was kind of unbelievable six months ago, you know? And of course, like, I think we, could, we should tax 25%. You know, Gabriel Zuckman is absolutely right. And, and, and Thomas Piketty is also right saying that 15% is too low, but it's better than zero, right? And I think it's much easier to go incremental, rising these taxes above 15% than it is to create the institution in the first place, this is a little bit of an optimist, but but I agree with Nick that uh, you should one should be careful in, in in formulating these models depending on what the country the model is supposed to speak of, because of course India is a very different economy than the United States or Taiwan is a very different economy than India and so on. 
so I'm not, I haven't read a ton about the specifics of the plan, but the basic idea, and I think it was beyond the G20, right? There was a, a large group of countries have now agreed to this, where basically they're going to impose a 15% global, global minimum corporate income tax rate. And the idea is that, um, you know, e even if, you know, some countries, you know, I, I think part of the structure and something that Zuckman has been kind of pushing is that the way you apportion this allows countries to collect the difference between what corporations in a given locality pay abroad and what they paid at home so to ensure that they're paying 15%, regardless of where they're booking their profits or their sales, right? And so it basically removes this international dimension of capital arbitrage, or that's the goal, right? And so that, that tilts the bargaining arrangement a little bit uh, in favor of workers. Right, and not just in favor of workers, in favor of governments who want to implement kind of other types of uh, corporate regulations that was that, that would otherwise be hard to do. Right. So. All right. Well, should we should we end it on a note of optimism and uh, uh, global solidarity against rapacious capitalists? This is a great point to end. I'm super thankful for the opportunity to speak, uh, you know, to speak with you all, and uh, um, I think again, like for whoever's listening. Uh, I think these are, these are, again, like we started off, like what draws you into economics? Like, you know, these are, you know, the, the, some of the biggest questions. Of course, we haven't touched at all on climate change. This is not my area of expertise, right? But, uh, you know, the question of inequality and the, how it relates to economic growth and well-being and standards of living and so on and so forth. These are like questions that have been with us, like, I don't know, for, forever. And so there's, I don't, I don't think there's anything more fun than speaking about these things, you know, with, with folks and, and trying to get, get some other folks to think about these issues and, and engage. And, and now more than ever, there are opportunities for young graduate students in economics to do so, not least at, at Colorado State. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for talking with us, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Reviving Growth Keynesianism is produced by me, Nick Johnson. The podcast is supported financially by the University of Chicago Program for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanists and Humanistic Social Scientists, the Micro Metcalf Internship Program, as well as the University of Michigan UROP Program. If you enjoyed this discussion, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts and consider leaving us a positive review, which will help us connect with more engaged listeners like you. More information on our ideas can be found at revivinggrowthkeynesianism.org. There you can also find our Patreon. We would greatly appreciate if you chose to support us. All donations allow us to put out more content for thoughtful listeners like you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.